When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Afternoon to you, it's 2.05. Welcome to Motown Monday and the run home with Stephen McIver. Oh yeah, it's a Christmas week and so much to look forward to. Stephen, Nerve and Kieran looking after you all the way through to six this evening. So wherever you are and if you want to feel like being part of the show and contributing, just get on the blower 0800 150811. That's 0800 150811. Or you can text us on the Temper Bedpost text line. That is 8833. Kieran, don't you just love a bit of Stevie, hey? Oh, I was loving it. I was on the drums. Well, just, hey, just turn it up again. Just turn it up. Let's just, just, hey, it's Motown Monday. Hang on. Here we go. So that's where we're all about today, Motown Monday, and anything that's going on like a World Cup. We'll play your highlights of that magnificent FIFA World Cup final in Qatar uh, earlier on this morning, which has basically uh, cemented Lionel Messi's reputation as the G-O-A-T. <laughs> and uh, it, is, it is amazing. I mean, there's been so much talk about this World Cup, but, you know, uh, politics aside, the... the the quality of the football that we have seen over the last month and a half has been five star. Better remind you what's coming on the Macca's menu with your Macca's favourites delivered with McDelivery. So coming between now and three o'clock, I'm going to replay an interview I did with Cameron George, the CEO of the one, is it the one New Zealand Warriors now? And it was probably one of the rawest interviews I've ever heard Cameron give. There was a lot of emotion attached to it, and it was prior to them coming home. And we got an indication of what he, as an individual, as a leader of an organisation, had been through to lead the organisation through the last two and a half years of that, pl- that thing we call C. We don't mention about the C word anymore. 
It's the one that ends in D, okay? It's the one that ends in D. Uh, also, we'll get Fred De Jong for more White's thoughts on the World Cup final. We'll talk about the cream of the crop. It's a little uh, lovely little uh, segment. Cream of the crop, what the two biggest things or one of the biggest things that's happened in the last 48 hours over the weekend. Also, after 4 o'clock, Kenny Smith. Now, this was an interview that Murph and I did on race control. Remember that? Uh, race control. And it was about uh, Pukekohe and the last races being handled at Pukekohe Raceway. Well, it was the last... It was the last supercars, but there is actually one event happening, I think, at the beginning of January that will sign off. It will sign off Pukekohe as a competitive raceway. Also, Justin Morgan, after five, the assistant Warriors coach, about how the season's been, how more importantly pre-season is going as they get their first home season in such a long, long time. And Crick Buzz writer, Bharat Sundaresan, is going to talk to us. He's also a part-time commentator with the SEN about how how do you manage a two-day test? How does how does that happen? So that's coming your way between now and six o'clock. That's the Macca's menu. Thanks to McDelivery, delivering your Macca's favourites straight to your door. All right, we've been talking about it all today, but why not relive the 2022 final of the FIFA World Cup between Argentina and France? We began this tournament 29 days ago with Qatar versus Ecuador, and now we end it with a matchup worthy of the final day. Is the final day of the 2022 FIFA World Cup. Twenty-two minutes elapsed, and a chance now for Argentina to take a 1-0 lead in the final of the World Cup. Lionel Messi stands over it. Hugo Lloris is bouncing up and down on the goal line. Messi staring, fixated at the ball. He strides up now, slows, and Lionel Messi has buried it. It's a goal to Argentina. Lionel Messi puts Argentina up 1-0 in the World Cup final. brings it back into midfield to DePaul. Over to Messi. Lovely touch to Alvarez. Now DePaul's kept on running. He's in behind the defence. Here go Argentina. They've gone to the left and the shot comes in and it's in from Angel Di Maria. Fast break from Argentina. Blitzing France from one end of the park to the other and Angel Di Maria. One of the veteran superstars of La Albi Celeste has made it 2-0 to Argentina in the 36th minute. They tore France asunder. People couldn't believe what I've become. Revolutionaries wait for much. Score here and there is still time. It'll be Kylian Mbappe who will take this penalty. Mbappe steps up, strikes it and he has netted it more comfortable against Croatia. Here they go again, France, and then, oh, what a wonderful finish from Kylian Mbappe! Skyrocketing talent in the world of football, and this final is level. It is Argentina 2, France 2. Back here, Argentina. Intricate piece of play, right side of the box. Shot comes in, right at Lloris, off the goal, under the go-in. Has it gone in? It was cleared off the line, and it is a goal! Argentina have scored, and it is Lionel Messi again. This is it. 
Gonzalo Montiel for Argentina. The world waits. Montiel steps up and he's put it in the back of the nets. And it's Argentina. Montiel has scored and Argentina have won the World Cup. And it's a glorious end to the odyssey of their little number 10. The spirit of Diego Maradona feels presence as his heir to the throne, Lionel Messi, gets his crowning moments. But that was when I ruled the world. And even the fact that Lionel Messi said it was going to be his last day game in the national shirt, he's actually come out and said it may not be his last game in the national shirt, saying he was still wants to play for Argentina in the national colours, quote, as a world champion. How about that? It's 2.11 here on SENZ. And SEN, if you're listening on the app over there, day to you. We'll talk about the Pakistan test a little bit later on. But how about this when it comes to the riches of FIFA? So what did the uh, Argentinians earn as a, a, a confederation? Uh, $66 million was the prize money. Just a drop in the hat. Uh, France picked up $30 million. Croatia got... I don't know how this one works, but... Uh, uh, 42 million and 39 million for Morocco. I think I've got that. Anyway, here's, here's, here's the crazy part of it all. More than affordable for FIFA in the last four years from broadcast and sponsorship deals plus ticket and hospitality sales, the total revenue for FIFA, 11.78 billion. That's billion dollars. 11.78 billion dollars. That is absolutely bonkers. But a, a great month of football, and why wouldn't you? And we are so proud here at SCNZ that we were able to bring you commentary of all those games, and we trust you enjoyed it. And it'll it'll make for such good uh, water cooler talk when you get back into the office after the new year. It's uh, 2.13. Coming next, uh, one of my favourite interviews of the year, talking to CEO of the One New Zealand Warriors, Cameron George. Sulu Harris making a good easy 15 metres, nearly at the 20. Still in the middle of the park now on last tackle. Lusset goes right to Johnson. Johnson looking for a little uh, up and under chip that goes to Watini Zizek. He bats it backwards. Coming back to grab it was Jesse Arthurs. The young kid who dreamed of playing for the Warriors from his days for the East Coast Bays Barracudas has dotted down at Mount Smart for the Warriors' third try. 22-2 the final score. And after 1,038 days, they finally come home. And the man that's been... Well, basically, been their dad for those three years is their CEO, Cameron George. Cameron, thanks for joining us tonight. I, I hope you're comfortable because I did warn you I was going to be. This might be a bit of a long chat. <laughs> Always comfortable around you, mate. No, it's great. Uh, it's great to join you after a fantastic weekend of sport in New Zealand. Like, how, how great is it to have all of it back? Rugby union, uh, league at the highest level, uh, both last weekend and this weekend, mate. It's just fantastic to be home. On a personal note. How relieved are you to be home? Well, you, I mean, you, you guys are basically still based in Australia, right? Let's let's be blunt for the rest of the season. That's right. So we're still based at Redcliffe and we'll fly home for the home games. Um, the reason for that is last year when we had to uh, plan the 2022 mm. season, uh, that was in about June, July last year, we had to start looking at that because the borders were shut uh, there was no sign of them opening. And then um, we had to look for a base, so we looked for Redcliffe. And one of the things that we needed to do was ensure we had stability around the families. 
and yeah. provided them with the opportunity to go to school all year and so on because some of the kids have been through four or five schools in the previous 18 months and it just was you know beyond fair so that was the key uh, ultimately the government come out and put their plan in place to say they're opening the borders in July which they did earlier and uh, here we are but mm. uh, we'll be based in Redcliffe for the rest of the year but be home to play our home games What was it like though what, for you personally to be back so even wander back to your old office and, and the you know the east stand and just sit down and go okay uh, we're, we're almost normal how, how important was that for you <laughs> as being the, the leader of this organisation oh, It was extremely special uh, when I got home last week to see some of the staff that I hadn't even met before in person. Um, you know, we had to employ people recently to fulfill some roles, give them a coming home. And it's just great to reconnect with them and just to walk around the, the office and to walk around the the gym that's ours and, the, and all the other parts of the stadium that um, we haven't had to enjoy uh, for the last, you know, two and a half years, three years. And, you know, don't forget in Australia, uh, we, we have been until Redcliffe working out of marquees uh, working out of porter comms, um, not having offices, using units as offices, um, and the players and the staff having to set up gyms within within gyms that mm. you know segregate you away from the public as well, and you had to do that daily. So there's a lot of operational stuff that uh, we were doing over there that to come home to a permanent base is just so much easier mm. and so much of a relief. Did you shed a tear at all last night at any point? Uh, I was, I was probably. I was a, mo- a bit more emotional on, on Tuesday uh, when we all reunited with the staff and players and had a beautiful ceremony mm. at the stadium. And um, then the sort of the excitement took over later in the week for me. And, mm. and you know, yesterday was, yeah, certainly emotional, but I was more excited for the fans. It was just, it was amazing, the atmosphere. and It was electric, the atmosphere. You couldn't help but just, you know, be excited about, this, you know, the scenario. And, uh, you know, I think as the night wear on, went on and we, and we looked like winning the game, uh, that, that probably <laughs> had a bit more time to reflect on the whole situation, how big the night was and the day was and the three years has been. Well, you'll have to indulge me because I do want to reflect and go back to the day and the moment you found out you couldn't come home. What, what was the first thing when Andrew Abdo says to you, you know, mate, uh, you ain't going home. Uh, you're stuck. What was your first thought and how easier did the NRL make your job? I didn't even know what COVID was when I got a phone call. Uh, we were heading to the game at Newcastle. Uh, I was going early so I could watch the um, watch the New South Wales Cup team play and it was a, a wet, windy day. And I had a phone call from uh, one of the media in New Zealand asking me about COVID. And has there been any discussions with government? And I said, uh, no, I'm not 100% sure what you're even referring to. So I hung up and I actually did ring uh, the government agencies back here and asked. And they said, look, no, nothing's happening here. It's all, all sweet. This was about midday. Um, by 3 o'clock kickoff, I think, we, the NRL kicked off around 3 o'clock, I'd had four or five phone calls with uh, Todd Greenberg at the time and James Bowen Rudder about the New Zealand borders um, they were getting a uh, a bit of noise that they were going to shut the next day. And by the time the game had finished, uh, it was full-blown. It was COVID was taking over uh, the world and uh, New Zealand were going to shut their borders and um, we had nowhere to go unless we went home that night. So it, it, it all became a really fast-moving 
uh, mess, to be fair. And I remember I was getting back to the dressing room after the game and uh, I just sat down with the players and I explained to them what I knew, which, to be fair, wasn't a great deal other than there's a COVID pandemic and it means that we can't fly back to New Zealand unless we go tonight or first thing in the morning. However, what it does mean is that we can't play in the NRL anymore. We'll be in lockdown. So everyone was a little bit shocked. Uh, they were on the phones with their families because it was big news in New Zealand overnight. Uh, the NRL were, were basically pleading with us not to go home because if we did go home, they were unable to fulfil their obligations broadcasting-wise, and that would have a significant impact on the competition and probably cancel it. So which, which, we decided... Which puts you in a, it puts you in a good bargaining position, right? Well, it does, but, you know, there's bargaining and then there's people. And when you've got to deal with people and their families, it doesn't matter what you're bargaining. Yeah. Nothing jeopardises or should risk the well-being and the welfare of you know the players and their families and the staff. Mm-hmm. So we, um, we, we had a big chat as a group and I left it with the playing group. I said, your call, we'll back you either way. Um, and look, they all decided to push on um, and stay indefinite. Uh, we had no training gear. And when I say no training gear, uh, no no pads, no equipment, no nothing, uh, no footballs. Uh, it was only game day stuff. Uh, we had no clothes and so on. So um, everyone chipped in and, you know, our sponsors and local football clubs gave us their jumpers and everything when uh, when they went to, you know, we went to Kingscliff. Um, however, I flew back the next day with Peter Hiku and Patrick Herbert, the first flight and the only flight we could get. Because those guys couldn't stay because they were they were expecting you know to have babies in the next couple of weeks, so they couldn't take that risk where the rest of the guys stayed. Um, and as you'll recall, we played Canberra the following week um, at the Gold Coast, and then the competition was closed, and we had to get special permission to come home at that point straight into lockdown. But then the whole new world started to happen again once uh, Peter Melandis opened up. The competition at the end of May again, and uh, we then had to try and get back in it and get back into Australia, and that was when a lot of hard work and a lot of discussion took place for the next two or three weeks. How, how quickly one forgets Todd Greenberg? Now I was thinking Andrew grabbed over. Todd Greenberg was the was the C, was the CEO at the time, so a lot of decisions had to be made. And Andrew Abdo said this past weekend that the sacrifice that the Warriors made to keep the competition alive uh, probably will never be repeated again. Those weren't his exact words. I'm adding that in. Uh, but from a commercial perspective, did the NRL make it easier for you as a club, as a professional organisation, to be based in Australia? Yeah, absolutely. Like The enticement for us to go there was to continue to earn an income for the individuals, their families, and um, so they picked, the club. They, picked, they picked up the tab. Is that what we're saying, simply? Well, they pay the salary cap anyway, but in yeah. terms of the club, they paid all the accommodation and so forth in that initial period yep. while we are in Australia. Because don't forget, when we went to Australia, uh, we were in a bubble, we were in lockdown in Tamworth and so on. Um, but there was a lot, a lot of water to go under the bridge mm. before we got to Australia. Um, and that was one part of it is we are not moving families or are not moving players and staff until we get what we want. And that was, you know, that was things like, Steve, that was, you know, things like you know, babysitting assistance. Uh, that was 
Um, don't forget the fathers are leaving families behind at that point. So the mothers were working and, you know, they had nowhere to put their children and so on. So there's all sorts of little things that we take for granted every day of the week by being around uh, that you do that when you're not here, um, you know, it becomes a challenge. So there was all of that stuff that we had to weigh up um, when the boys left their families behind. And that was that was pretty tough negotiating, but it was something we weren't going to move on. And um, I think at the end of the day, that's probably where Todd and, the commission part of ways because um, you know, we just couldn't find middle ground and we couldn't get answers quick enough and there was a lot of stress with our players and their families. So are you and, suggesting um, are you suggesting Todd was not in favour of you staying on board and the NRL picking up that tab and the commission was? No, no, not at all. I was just saying that's about the time Todd and the NRL part of okay. ways. When we, were, when we were discussing and negotiating all of that. Mm-hmm. So then we had to direct our whole discussions and negotiation towards Andrew Abdo, and that's where he picks up the bat, and he was he was absolutely fantastic. He he got straight up to speed, and he, um, you know, he just stepped in with a, a really fresh amount of energy, um, and we utilised that to our advantage, and we got a lot of stuff done pretty quickly. Um, but then the decision had to come, um, are we prepared to go? Yes, we are. Are we prepared to go on these conditions? Yes, we are. And that was the first step. And then the second step was, okay, how do we get to Australia? Because the international borders were shut. And not only did we have to try and get permission to go to Australia, we then had to get individual state permission to go into each state. So, um, you know, it was a, a cluster? It was just an ongoing challenge. It must have looked like that. Hey, just hold on, because I want to, I want to talk to you about... And it's just even listening to you, I can sense the, the emotional toll it took on, not just you, but everyone. Stay there. Thanks, Johnny. It's 2.31 here on SNZ on the run home with Stephen McIver, Kieran and Niv. And we're reliving an interview I did some time ago. It was the the week after the Warriors came home and we sort of went down a, a big hole and a good hole too with CEO Cameron George about the pressures and the emotional stresses that it was living away from home for a number of years. And I asked him... How many of the players told them they were struggling and, and, and how regular was that conversation? Yeah, look, there, there's a lot of challenges, um, you know, through that initial period. Uh, and the, the biggest challenge come about when we agreed to go to Australia. Um, the families weren't allowed to go at the initial stage where the players left to go to Tamworth uh, because the Australian government would only allow the players themselves to come. Mm. And we were promised that the families would come later, about a month after the players left. Mm. So the players left on that proviso, and um, that was very clear to us, and it was very clear to the players, and that was exactly the condition that the players left their families behind on. And then about three or four weeks later, uh, word come through that the, the players' families, if they weren't Australian citizens, or residents, uh, they couldn't go to Australia because of the border situation. So that then made us, you know, work through one of the biggest and the saddest days that I've had in the job, where I had to sit down with the players and said, your families can't come for those that aren't eligible to travel into Australia on these conditions. So it was really tough because that's when the players felt let down. They felt that the NRL... um, and everybody had promised them though the conditions were coming over to play in the competition on. And when the families couldn't join them, um, you know, it was very sad. 
it was very difficult and it was really challenging for us all to work through. And as you recall, we had a number of players come back because that was a condition that uh, they went to Australia on. Um, so from that point on, you know, it was really important that we wrapped good welfare support and wellbeing support around the players. And it's been constant up until now. And it hasn't been easy for the players or the staff. You know, you can't forget about the staff as well. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they're in the background doing all the work as well. And uh, they've suffered just as much as the players. And uh, that's something that I just never want to live through again. And um, it was really difficult to manage that whole experience because of the borders and they were completely out of our control we just had no control over that did you feel like you let the players down do you feel like you let the staff down that that was partially your fault because you couldn't get what you had said was going to happen 100 percent. i felt sick to the stomach mate I, i i was devastated because it was made clear we will go but the families come and they joined the players when they got to Terrigal after spending a month in Tamworth on the 28th of May when the uh, competition re- resumed. And when that failed because of the government restrictions, I felt useless because I couldn't you know, ask the Australian government to change their mind. Well, I asked, but yeah. they just wouldn't change their mind. And I just felt so bad because... I'd been a part of the whole negotiations with the players and the leadership group, and this was one key condition, if not the main condition, and it was taken out of our control, and I just was left standing there having to then tell the players that their families couldn't join them, and it was devastating, and that's one part that I'll ever always look back on with great regret that um, we weren't able to get the families there and then. Did you, did you, you know, go to the NRL and say, hey, this is, this is what was supposed to be going on. Uh, it hasn't delivered. Did, are you going to fight for us? Or, or did they say, sorry, our hands are tied because of the government decision? Pretty well. Um, and look, I, I've got to say that they did fight for us, but, you know, you're dealing with the federal government and the global pandemic. Yeah, and yeah. Um, you know, it's just we were one drop in the ocean compared to all of the requests they were getting and we were just getting nowhere with it. So I remember the day clearly talking to the players, they were devastated um, and basically saying to the players, well, on that basis, if you want to come home, you come home because I'm not going to let you down anymore on the basis that yep. so you I, couldn't have your family there. So I'd like, I'd like to question you on that, okay? I think who came home? Kenny Momolo came home, did he not? Um, who else came yep. home? Um, I can't David Pusatua. Yeah, right. Okay, so two two key strike weapons and a good forward, right? So I want to if you had had if you had had it differently, if would you have done anything different? Would you say, guys, we understand what's going on, but everybody else is staying. We should stick together. Would you have? Considered that at all if you had it over again? Because I thought I'll be blunt with you, I and and what you're telling me I haven't heard before, but I thought at the time it was a soft option to let them come home because I thought it sent the wrong message about team, about sticking no, together no. in in a crisis. No, I'd probably go the other way. Okay, I most likely would have said we're not leaving the shores of New Zealand until the families are accepted to go into Australia. It was devastating uh, to separate kids, their fathers, their wives, their partners, um, on the basis that I was told that we would have that condition granted. 
Um, and then not the fault of the NRL, it was just the government came down harder in that period of time in terms of access to Australia. So mm, okay. I was not going to stand in the way of any individual who's a human and a father uh, that wanted to be home with their family because we're dealing with a global pandemic here. No one knew where it was going to finish. No one knew when it was going to finish. And no one knew how to handle it, to be fair, because there's no, you know, you can't <laughs> pick up a manual and read you know, chapter <laughs> five and go, this is how you handle, uh, you know, border restrictions and a global pandemic. Um, so it was quite scary, but I felt that was the best way forward for those guys. And, um, you know, it was a decision that I feel very comfortable with because they had the support of their teammates and so on, uh, and yep. everyone had the choice, and some chose to stay and some chose to come home, and it was it was going to be what it was going to be, but it was a difficult time, uh, no yeah. doubt, and, and something that I look back on and think was probably one of the saddest parts of the whole process. How did you reconcile that, that day? What was when you walked away and said, "Okay, this is what it's in." What did you do? Can you remember the moment you just walked? Did you walk away and go, "Oh man, I don't"? Yeah, I mean, what was what was going on in your head, man? Oh well, I felt I let the players down and their families, and and the part that I could start to bridge it back together was giving them that option to come home, and and those that chose to come home, they come home, and you know, to our open arms, you know, we come home, we we had a catch up at the club, and you know, it was sad, it was tough, but. Um, yeah, I felt, I just felt that was probably my lowest point. But, and then from that point on, we just had to navigate through it um, and, and try and get the players as settled as we best could, get the best support around them. And the other thing is, when you're, when you're talking about the situation in Australia that they're living in, um, they're in apartments in a facility they couldn't leave. Um, so you, you weren't allowed to leave the facility. So these guys were 24/7 living together, training together. We only had we only had access to four mini buses. Uh, they could only travel in those mini buses to and from the training facility. They could only travel to and from the the gym that we had to set up every day away from the public and pull it down every afternoon after training. And we had to wipe everything down, clean the gym out, and so on. And then they'd be straight back home. Um, so they weren't they weren't out and about. Um, doing their, their normal thing mm. that they would be if they weren't in lockdown. So it was a really, really strict and restrictive bubble that they lived in. So it wasn't fun, absolutely not. Uh, they had a lot of spare time in their hands and they had no one but their teammates there. So it, was, um, it wasn't like they were living in paradise. It was, it was pretty tough. And I remember, um, you know, in comparison to the other football clubs, and this was the key difference, and this is why, you know, it was quite tough for us to get through was that every other NRL club, their players lived at home, so they had a bit more freedom. They were able to travel to training on their own. They were able to go home to their families. They were able to um, you know, take their kids for a walk and go to the park and so on because they wanted the people to, the, the other players at the other clubs, they wanted to maintain a family lifestyle. Um, and I remember one of the conditions that was pretty clear when I looked at the protocols was they you know, were allowed to go and take their, their, their dogs for a walk. So one of the things that you know, Dan Floyd and a few of the other boys <laughs> and, and, and I come up with was that we, we didn't have the children there, so they couldn't go to parks and so on, but we rang the local dog pound where they obviously <laughs> hold all the, the dogs that don't have a home. And um, we said, if you bring a heap of dogs around you know, every second afternoon, 
Um, <laughs> the boys would take a dog each and and go walking across the road into the parks. All of a sudden, we had the the Central Coast dog pound turning up with all these uh, oh. all these dogs uh, with leads on and. The boys would just walk out, grab whichever dog they wanted to, and uh, become a mate with that dog, and take them for a walk for a couple of hours. Oh, that was the only way we could get that in that stage. That was the only way we could get them out of the bubble was to go go walking <laughs> with the dog. So um, it was a creative way, but it was a it was a legit way that we could get the boys out for a bit of fresh air and a bit of self time. But 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 so healthy because dogs aren't judgmental, right? I'm a dog owner and that uh, would have been and would have been such a different experience for, for guys that probably weren't dog people. Yeah, and, and there was guys that, you know, had dogs in New Zealand like Jazz and those boys who were missing their dogs and all of a sudden they were able to become friendly with, you know, with the local dogs in the <laughs> pound and and I think uh I think there was some good friendships strike up, you oh. know, struck up there and they they had a lot of joy there um, doing that creative way of uh, of getting out uh, using the protocols to to the extent we had to to try and get them some fresh air and get them out and about. Before before we wrap up this part of the conversation, I, I haven't asked you this, but who did you lean on? Because you, you you're saying everybody else is doing the good job, but you're the one having to de- deliver the bad news to them at this point. And we know it gets better and we know that you're back, let's say you're back home. So before we get onto a different part of this conversation, who did Cameron George lean on? Robbo, Mark Robinson. He was fantastic. You know, he was so supportive. He was um, he was just, let's just get on and do what we have to do. Uh, but, you know, the leadership group were outstanding, Stephen. They, they were... You know, Blake Green, Torhu Harris, Rodney Tuivasa-Shek. Um, you know, those guys were just... Adam Blair was another one. They were just outstanding. And um, they worked really closely with me. And I really included them in a lot of the journey um, and discussions and decision-making. And communication was key. And um, we did work through it together. And on a personal note, you know, I just, just come home from work and you just kept going 24-7. I just had to because... That was the only solution was to keep going and and to navigate the club through it. Um, you know, was was made easier because of that support. Um, and did we get it right all the time? I don't think we did, but we had a bloody good shot at trying to navigate through something we'd never experienced before. Okay, so I, I want to I want to take another wee break because I want to navigate something that I'm really hot on. I've never called you out on it because I have a different view to you, and I'm sure you're going to put me in my place. But I want to talk about Roger Tuivasa-Shek. So stay there, Cameron. Have another drink, and I'll be back with you shortly. Say 10 to 3, 10 to 3 on a Monday, Motown Monday. We'll have more Motown music after 3 o'clock with Stephen McIver, Niv and Kieran, of course, uh, guiding you home this Monday afternoon towards Christmas of 2022. And this is the final part of my interview I did with uh, CEO of the One New Zealand Warriors, Cameron George, after they'd just come home. And I, I wanted to call him out because to this day I still disagree with the fact that they let Roger Tuivasa-Shek And I said to him, I just don't see any world where this should have happened. Yeah, look, everyone's going to have a different opinion on this, and, and, and you will as well. But um, look, uh, in, in simple terms, Roger earned that from, from us. Now, why I say that is because when Roger made that request that he wanted to you know, uh, play rugby union, he did so on the basis that he wanted to be based back in New Zealand with his family, and obviously, uh, he didn't want to stay away from his family for another year or two. And 
let's not forget when the request was made, we had no idea how long we we're going to be away for. Mm-hmm. So Roger uh, has been one of the leaders through this whole sacrifice. He has sacrificed more than any, and he has given day in, day out to our footy club. Um, when he sat down with me and discussed it, I could sense how much it meant to him to be home. Yes, he wanted to go and play the other code. I understand that. And I felt that all I was doing was tearing him apart from his family, that he couldn't be back here with them. Can I stop you? But can I stop you there just for a moment? But he's just one player. Every all those players were sacrificing. They were all away from their families. So why was he more special? Why not, Rob? Let other players go to be with their families too. It's not. It wasn't just isolated to Roger. Hmm. Roger, at the time when the other players left to come home to be with their families, he continued on with the challenge. He continued to lead the club through the darkest times through the COVID pandemic. Mm-hmm. He never, ever once wavered from that obligation, but it wore him down. He's a terrific human, a family man, and a great athlete. And I'd love to still have Roger at the club, but he wanted to go off on a different journey for his own personal reasons. And I believe personally, when we sat down and talked about it, he'd earned that right to have that discussion and asked us to consider it. Now he did it respectfully. He did it for his own personal reasons. And we agreed. And, uh, and at the end of the day, he wasn't leaving the club any earlier than just a year earlier. However, that changed when things changed again last year with the border restrictions Bearing in mind, he was one of the ones that his family couldn't come over, uh, and he and, and you know he'd been through that devastating experience. And then last year, uh, in the middle of 2021, when we got rushed up to the Gold Coast and put in a jail-like scenario <laughs> in different hubs, when the New Zealand Prime Minister come out and said, "If you're not home in a week, these borders are shut." Now I'm telling New Zealanders, if you want to get back, you get back now. Otherwise, I don't know when you'll be back. Now, if it didn't go then, and Lisa Narmel, if they didn't go then, they wouldn't have got back until June this year. And that was not fair. And I was never going to stand in that way. And I'll tell you one thing I learned through that devastating experience that I told you was the saddest time yeah. of my life. I will never use sport to separate families. That is the most difficult thing to do. And I expect the players to fulfil their obligations but when it gets to the point of no return when they've been away for so long and separated for so long you've got to treat them as humans and that's exactly the way Roger deserved to be treated One news, one news One One at New Zealand I can't get to this, the one New Zealand Warriors CEO Cameron George, Uh, probably the most the last part of the interview I ever had with him but it was, I will never use sport to separate families and that, that has stuck with me since that interview. We'll wrap up the sound. Look forward to between three and four in just a moment on SCNZ. Monday afternoon with Stephen McIver, Kieran and Niv in the hot seat are bringing you all the joy of what Christmas of 2022 can be and, and, and bringing you some memories as well of some of the interviews we may have done. Uh, before six o'clock, you'll hear from uh, the great uh, Kiwi motorsport icon and, and Kenny Smith and his thoughts about uh, saying goodbye to Pukekohe. But coming your way after three o'clock, we'll talk to former all-white Fred de Jong about this morning's epic FIFA World Cup final, which saw Argentina reign supreme over France. We'll play Drive to survive and a whole lot of other things. So keep it right here on SENZ.
5 on SCNZ and SCN on the app. If you're listening in Australia, g'day, how are you? Nice to hear from you. Uh, thanks, Luke, for texting in on the Timber Bedpost text line, double eight double three, and saying, thank you so much for the FIFA commentaries. Great while working night shift. And we're going to talk about FIFA and the World Cup shortly with former all-white Fred Dion. Nothing like a little GB. Georgie Benson, give me the night. Not necessarily Motown, I think, but also, but very smooth and very cruisy, and that's what we'd like to think. You're sliding into the Christmas of 2022. Of course, Freddie will be our Macca's interview, thanks to McDelivery. So coming your way before 4 o'clock this afternoon, we'll talk to Freddie about that magnificent final. Also, we'll hear from Paul Mawate from the TRB about what's going on, and also the cream of the crop. I'll say one one line, Australian demolition. That's what we're thinking might be the cream of the crop today. So there is so much. And if you want to be part of the conversation, and I want you to be part of the conversation, then 0800 150811 is the number to call. That's 0800 150811. Okay, so it's all done and dusted. The FIFA World Cup is over and we have our champions and it is Argentina for the first time since 1986. Their first since Diogo Maradona's 86 campaign. And the hero this time, uh, I think the SCN commentator said quite nicely, almost like the in the shadow of Maradona, Messi magic uh, brings them a World Cup. But I wonder whether that is the same feeling that Fred Diong has with me. Freddie, Messi magic, was it all about that? Pretty much, I think. I think uh, you know he's, the comparisons for with '86 are, are quite startling because uh, you know that was also a team Maradona dragged that team through the tournament, uh, scored two goals in the quarterfinals. I think it was against England. Scored two goals against Belgium in the semi-finals to get them to the final, and then two nil up. Um, Germany came back to all, and then it was Maradona who set up the final goal for 3-2 victory. So when you look at this game, you know, 2-0 down, or 2-0 up, 2-all, and then into, you know, Messi scores again. So, yeah, the parallels were, were, were quite striking, and I think Messi magic uh, carried the day. Um, albeit Mbappe uh, <laughs> was doing his best to drag France across the line on his own. So when you so this is the old goat debate, right? But I, I wonder whether it's even a debate worth having anymore, because Lionel Messi is is he a generational player? Oh, absolutely. But I mean, I think for me, there's 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 been three, um, you know, there's, there's three in the conversation. There's Pele, there's Maradona, and there's Messi now. Wow. Um, but I don't think you can separate them. I don't think you you look at those guys. Like Pele, he won three World Cups, you know. So 
You know, if, if your criteria are World Cups, then Pele's probably never going to get surpassed. Um, you know, so, you know, if, if Messi's, Messi's scored, you know, so many amazing goals and his club stuff, you know, Pele played his whole career in Brazil. You know, Messi's played his whole career, you know, pretty much most of his career at Barcelona in the top, at the top, top levels of club football, won and done everything. Um, at club level, uh, and now has done the ultimate at, at uh, national level. Maradona did the same, you know, and Maradona was in a period where, boy, you got absolutely axed by defenders. No protection from the referees. You know, his ankles were like black and blue after games. Uh, so, you know, harder for him to do what he did in his era than Messi is doing in his era, although the standard of play was lower. So, you know, this, these are the nuances of the conversation so for me there's three players who are who have been the best players of, um, over time Fred easy to sound retrospect but it would have been a beautiful moment if Maradona was still with us right oh absolutely that would have yeah yeah truly it would have been um, you know, and, <laughs> um, you know when Maradona walks into a stadium everyone turns and looks at Maradona hmm. just you've you know, been a beat in, in games where he turns up and he walks out, and the whole, virtually the whole crowd just turn around and applaud um, as he you know, walks out onto thing. But I mean, a flawed genius, and Messi's not like Messi's you know, carried himself better than Maradona has um, you know, through his career. But um, yeah, Maradona also a genius, but a flawed genius. And so, so, and so, you've seen these things happen. So I, I'd love your insight. Let's just park Messi for a moment, okay? Because uh, football was different, as you've described. What was it about Maradona that you saw firsthand that that stopped people in their tracks? What oh, do you he, think it was? He an, he, oh, he has an he has an order about him, you know. Um, and and I think he was the he was the best dribbler to come out of football um, first. And so, you know, he was someone, no one, uh, no one had really done what he'd done, and he did. Um, and Messi sort of followed in those tracks. As a young, a young Messi was very similar to Maradona, where, you know, we, we've seen the goal, the, the goal against England, the second goal against England, you know, the goal of the century. You know, it goes past, just go pace, technique, ability to keep the ball under control on a really crap pitch, by the way, um, just, you know, and goes past four or five defenders and slots the ball past Peter Schulte. You know, and, you know, and, and Messi in his heyday was doing the same things, would pick up the ball on the halfway line, on the sideline and run past five or six players and score. And for, he did that for Barcelona for many years and obviously now a different player. But Maradona was the first to do that and that made him so special. He could just, he was, he was what we've seen with, with, um, with Messi in this World Cup, but he was like a cross between Messi and Mbappe. If you, if you looked at that and put those two things together, which is what Messi was in his heyday, that's what Maradona was as well. They, they say true champions, tr- the special ones, uh, time stops because they have so much time. They see it in a different light. Uh, there was this one touch I saw from Messi on a super slow-mo, which was, just a subtle touch, but you, you, you sensed he knew exactly what he was doing. Yeah, and, and yeah, the, the, game, the game sort of, for those players, it, the, the game sort of opens up and, and sort of it moves slower, you know. Well, I'm ho- I think so because I was never in that sort of situation. 
You had to catch up, Fred. No, no, but, you know, it's like they're playing it in. Like the game's going in slow motion for them. And yeah. Everyone else is on fast forward. Yeah. So, uh, you know, and, and that's in any sport. You know, the, the true genius are the ones who seem to have so much more time. And, uh, and yeah, we saw that. We saw that with, you know, really a classic example of that was, uh, was Messi's goal against the Netherlands. You know, he, uh, his assist, sorry, against the Netherlands. He's dribbling across the penalty area, reverse pass um, for Alcatraz. Um, and, uh, <laughs> and it's a goal. You know, and so, you know, th- those sort of moments just really define what me- where Messi is at the moment now. He's, you know, his ability to see things that other players can't see and also then to execute. Because a lot of players can see it, they just can't execute and he can do both. Do you care if he keeps on playing for the Argentine national side? He said after the World Cup, because, you know, this was supposed to be his swan song in the national jersey, but he's now said... I'd actually like to continue in the national jersey as a world champion. Do you care either way? Well, I think that's his decision. For me, as a fan, you go, yeah, I'd love to see him play. You know, I'd love to see if he can if he can carry on at the, at the level he is now. It's, there's no reason why not. He's not stressing his body too much because he, he's uh, you know he's, he's covering. I think his stats were he covers like five kilometers in the game, and so that's you know most most other. Strikers and other players are doing eight, nine, ten, and the the real hard-working midfielders are doing up to twelve kilometres, thirteen kilometres a game. So you know he's not stressing too much because he can, he has the ability to walk around and then pick his moment, as he did today. He picked his moment to you know popped up for the uh, for the third goal for for Argentina. Just pops up in the right area, slots the ball home. Well, he's you know, pulling. He's, he the, he's pulling the strings, Freddie. Right? He's the puppeteer. Exactly. Absolutely, absolutely. Although, I mean, I thought in the second half he actually he dropped his, his level, dropped off. He he was caught in possession for um, for France's second goal. He got caught in possession a couple of other times, so he wasn't actually playing that well. And and at the start of the tournament, you know, Australia when, against Australia, I thought he was poor. You know, he was playing poorly, but then steps up and scores scores a goal, and so everything's forgotten. But um, if he's, you know, if that's his want, then obviously the, you know, he's he's earned the right to just pick his time to retire. But as a fan, yeah, it's great to see the great players keep going so long as they can retain their level. Does Mbappe win another World Cup? Got time on his side? I think when you look at the quality of the French players, uh, yes, France will will push hard for another one. But it's tough. Tough to win a World Cup. You've got to, you know, and, and now there's looking at the at the coming World Cups. Probably there's going to be an extra round, well, unless they revert back to the current formula of 32 teams. There will probably be an extra round of knockout football. So again, that raises the uncertainty levels about going all the way because now there'll be you'll probably have to play eight games to make the World Cup to make the final or to win the to win the. Um, You're not happy with the side. You don't like this idea of going to what forty-two? Is oh, it? it's ridiculous. Forty? Well, has it 40, forty-eight? Forty-eight it's teams. Forty-eight teams. It's 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 insanity. This is a money. This is a money grab. That's all it is. Well, they, no, don't, they don't no, need. They don't need it, mate. They, 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 in the last four years, they've pulled in, according to the report I saw today, eleven point seven eight billion dollars. Yeah, but, they, but that's never enough, you know. So it's. You know, I mean, they also. Cause the other thing is, you got to think, the 
world, the the men's World Cup, okay, the women's World Cup is starting to earn, is going to break even now, and over time will probably start to earn more earn money. But the the World Cup is FIFA's only tournament, so this is all the revenue. So all the eggs are in one basket here. And what and the the problem that FIFA have is they look over the fence at UEFA, at the Champions League, and that's happening every year. And it's turning over three, four billion dollars. So UEFA have just got this money train going, and now they've started the Nations League. So they have more competitions because they have they they don't own the players, but they have more control over the player base, the best player base. And so FIFA are very jealous of that, and so they're looking at ways to increase the revenue. And so we just saw two or three days ago in Fantino announces a 32-team FIFA Club World Cup in 2025. No consultation, no nothing, and comes out with that. Now, all the club players are going, where the heck are you going to squeeze that in, yeah. you know, in 2025 in the calendar? Because we're actually knackered. We're playing 60, 70, 80 games a year. We're knackered. When do we get a break? And so these are the, this is the problem that FIFA have. So they're looking at ways to increase the revenue, and the easiest way is to make their World Cup bigger, the 48 teams. So, you know, you imagine if you take the, say, what would be, what would that game be? 48 teams, the top 48 teams, you're probably looking at a game like China versus Iran in, at the World Cup or uh, Honduras versus... New Zealand. Um, Iraq. Yeah, Honduras versus New Zealand. It's not a classic fixture, is it? No. You know, for, for the neutral. So, so there's your problem. The, the quality gets diluted, the number of games goes up, the money goes up, but is it a better competition? No, it's not, and the format is garbage. But if we finish on a positive note, would it be fair to say, Fred, from what you saw over this FIFA World Cup, the quality of football was pretty special? Quality of football was, was amazing, I thought. The, the, the football side of the World Cup here was, was very, very good. But I, I, I also don't think you can separate just the football, which is what FIFA are asking you to do. They're asking you to say, just focus on the football, and this is the best World Cup, most goals scored, amazing final, um, and just park everything else. And I have an issue with that. I don't think you... Because then you're agreeing to basically sport washing, and I think that's dangerous. Um, and I think it's, it's incumbent on sport to make sure that they... Uh, uh, they're accountable. Using, yeah, they're accountable. You know, so you shouldn't take your your um, your sport to you know to some places in the world where there's dictators, where there's you know dubious um, practices, without putting your moral standards on other people. I think you still got to be you've, you 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 have to be accountable for what you do with your sport. And what does Freddie De Jong want for Christmas? Oh man. Oh, can be anything. I would Fred. love, I would love in four years' time, someone, someone to put a star on Holland's shirt, please. In my a star, in my lifetime, put a star on Holland's shirt, please. In my lifetime, can you can I you want. please explain? I've got no idea what you're talking about. Oh, when you when you win the World Cup, you can put a star on your shirt. So now Argentina will have three stars on their shirt. Brazil have five. Okay. So, so when you look at the Spain have won. So when you look at the shirt, so now every every Argentinian has to go out and buy a new shirt. 
<laughs> they need to put another star on it. Ka-ching. So, um, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but in my lifetime, that's all I want. <laughs> Mate, that's that's that that's an honourable wish. A star on the Dutch or the what we, the Dutch. We're going to say Dutch. I can't keep saying Netherlands. I know. I know I'm supposed to say Netherlands, but that's okay. Hey, Freddie, it's always a pleasure yakking to you, mate. Have a, a prosperous and peaceful Christmas and year, and we will talk again, bud. Same to you guys. Same to all the listeners as well. Have a merry Christmas. All right, it's three twenty-one, and uh, that was uh, Freddie de Jong. SENZL on a Motown Monday, the Supremes and Baby Love. They were they were the one of the Motown's biggest acts in the sixties. Of course, Motown set up by the the famed Barry Gordy, Diana Ross, and the Supremes. And a, a bit of Baby Love on a Monday afternoon, the nineteenth day of December for twenty twenty two, and the run home with Stephen McIver, Kieran and Nerv. It's three twenty seven, and uh, Kieran, it would be fair to say, is a frothing at the moment uh, because the uh, Silver Ferns Quad Series team has been named for the the, the Quad Series uh, in January. That's when the Silver Ferns will head to Cape Town ahead of the next year's World Cup. And some returnees, me old mate. Yeah, geez, Christmas has come early for me, Stephen. I get uh, I get Stephen fair, McIver singing Motown frothing, and I get a new uh, yeah, and I get a new Silver Ferns squad. No, but it's uh, it's a stunner. So obviously, Silver Ferns are going to head off to Cape Town, which is actually where the uh, World Cup is going to be played later in the year. So I think Dame Knowles is just going to use this quad oh, series. Do we it's call called. it Dame Knowles? Do we? Is yes. that, is that oh, sorry, how you roll? D- Dame Knowles and Totoa. No, is that how you roll it? You're Show's Dame Knowles. Call it Auntie. Auntie. Auntie Knowles. <laughs> auntie Knowles. I'm sure she wouldn't mind. She's probably listening right now, aren't you? Well, auntie? You've, got, you've got history, right? Yeah. yeah and, no, no, hang on, hang on. Well, no, we're not going to explain In the sense this, that you worked for Netball News. <laughs> I did. I did. Yeah, no, I've got. I mean, she, yeah, Dame Knowles, she's quite lovely. She was good help in my career, actually, to start yeah. my career, to be fair. She's lovely. So, yeah, I've always Great got leader. Great her. leader. She truly is. She truly is. So, one, one characteristic that defines her as a great leader passion. And and it is because no 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 hear me out. Hear Follow, me out. Following following after I said you had history. <laughs> no, this oh my goodness, Jeepers creepers, David. It's, Christmas has not come early for me, Jeepers. We skipped right over it. And, oh, just ready for the new year. Sorry, now, to sorry, be fair. Karen. Okay, so passion. Oh, yeah, off. carry on. Go with it. Yeah. So okay, I'll sum that up because you've got in my head now. Yeah, passion, yeah okay. Because sorry. when I used to do my first, very first job with netball was doing social media for the Mystics, the uh, the Auckland team. Dame Knowles would sometimes come along to these trainings and just watch. And oh my God, it was like it. it was her team like she had nothing she'd just be sitting back scouting and by the end of it she'd be standing up yelling at the players you know so she's just she breathes netball lives breathes netball but now her team uh, we've got Karen Berger Gina Crampton and uh, where are we here Peter Toyava stayed in the team which is one that I really loved and Jane Watson is returning as well. So we were missing uh, during the Constellation Cup, Karen Berger, uh, Jane Watson and Gina Crampton. Gina was just taking a sabbatical but 
Karen's come back from her foot injury. Jane's came back from having her baby. So it's the first time we're seeing a full-strength Silver Ferns team for the year. I was about to say that because no Kayla Johnson, right? No. Yeah, so that's no. that's her done, basically. Yeah. Where, where we, yeah. that, politely. Well, to me, Kayla got brought in because Karen was away. Okay. And arguably, like, and this is a bit of a hot one, there was better players to take, but Kayla's experience yeah, in yeah. the international level, and look at the year she had. She yeah. had an amazing year. Arguably could have been up there with Player of the Year. I know it went to Kelly Jerry, but our defenders this year, the likes of Phoenix Karaka and Kayla, who returned to netball at the same time, both just had standout years to me. So it's going to be really interesting seeing that defensive circle be completely mixed up again. I think, sadly, we'll see Solu Fitzpatrick, who's captained the team in the past, drop down that order a little bit just because of the strength that Jane Watson and Karen Berger bring to the back end. But are you going to... You gonna watch the quad series? Not at five AM and three AM in the morning, mate, because oh, yeah. that's when they play Silverfin yeah, South Africa Sunday the twenty second yeah. of Jan at three AM uh, against Australia at five AM Monday the twenty third, Wednesday the twenty fifth at three AM Silverferns England and the final uh, if they make it, regardless. Oh no, excuse me, the final is at five AM on the twenty sixth of January and three AM third and fourth place. No, those those times I'll be I'll be busy doing other things. Preparing for Singing a motorsport motor weekends and no, stuff no, like preparing that. Preparing for Motown weekend. <laughs> preparing <laughs> for Motown weekend. Get out of here. It's 3.31. Three thirty-three on a Motown Monday on the run home with Stephen McIver hearing it through the grapevine. The great late Martin Gay, Marvin Gay. Actually, speaking of hearing it through the grapevine, that's how the TAB set their odds. A Paul Mawati. They just hear it through the grapevine. Say, yeah, let's do it that way, right? <laughs> Some people, well, quite a few people would probably agree with you there, Stephen. <laughs> Hello, mate. Uh, compliments of the season. Yes, same to you. Yep, yep. I, I asked, I asked uh, Freddie De Jong what he wanted for Christmas, and he said, "I wanted a, I want a star in the next four years on the jersey of the Netherlands football side. A star depicting, as I discovered, meaning you've won a World Cup, uh, which is, which was a hell of a wish, and it's going to have to wait a little while. What do you? What is your wish for Christmas? Uh, well, I wish that uh, Brendan McCallum might decide to coach uh, a team from this side of the world. Really? Yeah. You see, my, my wish would be for Razor to go and coach England. That would be my well, wish. Yeah. Don't you, I, reckon he, I reckon he's played the NZR beautifully. I reckon he has yeah. played them to a fault. They've gone, <gasps> and now, now, now we'll change the way we think about how we employ or... <clears throat> Uh, a, a new coach. I reckon he's played them to the T and knew exactly what he was doing. You could be very, very right. Oh, there, get off Stephen. the fence. Get off the <laughs> fence. You so you so know that's what people are thinking, right? I thought I, I would have loved to have seen him go to the England and shake it up and see if the style of play that he produces with the Crusaders and the like would fit an international side. Because I think, as we've seen with Baz and Baz Ball with English, they they can adapt. They certainly can. Yeah, if you've got <laughs> uh, if you've got the coach who's willing to think outside the square and a team that's um, willing to get behind them uh, and sort of yeah get taken wherever the coach wants to take you, um, it work. It can work, and it would have been very very interesting to see Razor 
uh, at the helm of either the English um, Scottish, or one of the Ireland, other international teams. <laughs> yes, yeah, any one of them over there. I, I love how you say would have. Like, it's like you've got inside information. What have you heard on the grapevine? <laughs> I've heard nah, don't, don't you involve me, Stephen. I have no idea what's going oh, on. So, uh, yeah, okay, I'll take that picket fence out of your backside later. Uh, all righty, uh, let's, let's, let's talk about what's, what's hot. Actually, let's stop, Stephen. Let's start again. FIFA World Cup, did you guys make a ton yep. of cash? Uh, it was a, yeah, it was a good World <laughs> Cup. It, it was a good World Cup, Stephen, yeah. What was the it biggest was... bet you took on it? Can you remember? Oh, righty. I know, this I is what happens we... when you get asked questions you weren't prepared for. Look, look the biggest one that I saw was a $70,000 oh, bet. Crikey, Dex, on what? Uh, it was on, I think it was in the round of 16. It was on one of the teams to win, someone like a... Uh, France, or I think it was on France to win. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that that was the biggest one that I saw, seventy thousand. But I believe there was, uh, there were one or two others, um, slightly bigger. So, oh, okay. yeah, did, did I you, saw that one. Did you enjoy it? Did you enjoy what what you saw of it? Did you enjoy it? Oh, I sure did. Yep. Um, the, it's a tournament that sort of had everything. To be fair, you had a number of favourites go out um, early on in the tournament: the Germans, the Spanish. Uh, you had the the, the hot favourites, uh, Brazil, um, yeah. get knocked out by by Croatia. You know, you had teams like Saudi Arabia who who beat the current world champions um, yeah, in for, group play. We forget about that, don't we? Yes, yeah. And so, and I can tell you, after that game, Argentina blew out to around eight fifty nine fifty to win the World Cup, oh. and there were a number of punters. Who jumped on at that eight dollars fifty nine dollars? Oh, can, can you uh, imagine just even up. putting a grand on that, something like that, or even five hundred bucks? You'd be laughing yeah, all the way to the bank this this afternoon. You would have been nervous a, a number of times because, of course, <laughs> they went to a penalty shootout against the Netherlands, uh, and they went to a penalty shoot after being two 0 up. Uh, went to a penalty shootout in the finals as well. It was a great final as well. Um, it wasn't the case of one team playing poorly. Both teams played well, I thought, and. The stars and the teams, the Mbappes and the Messies, both played their parts as well. So it, it was just a, it was a wonderful, wonderful final. Was there strong engagement? There certainly was. Yeah, and and the deeper the tournament went, um, the more sort of engagement there was. Even though there were fewer teams to bet on, the more engagement we saw, uh, especially from your, I guess you'd say, recreational football punter. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they really got stuck in towards the end. Yeah, and I, I, I think yeah, it, it was it was good to watch, good to enjoy, and I think in many people's minds, uh, the result, barring if you're a French supporter, was was a a right result. Okay, so what are you going to start on us today with? Uh, what do we look at? We've got a late <laughs> NFL match. Uh, uh, the command, is... Commanders versus the Washington fourteen three. Uh, the Giants against Washington at the moment, and we're in the second quarter with one thirty seven to play. Yes, that's right. And we took quite a bit of money on the commanders before the game started. Uh, they were favourites. I think they were around four-and-a-half-point favourites, five-and-a-half-point favourites before before the game started, the commanders. And we did take quite a bit of action on them. Yeah. Um, so the Giants are doing us a wee bit of a favour at the moment. As you say, they currently lead 14-3 with, what, uh, around a minute or so to go in that second quarter. Um 
also, I'm just having a look, the old dart, which was on this morning and continues oh, tomorrow of morning. Uh, World Champs at Ali Pally. Yeah, exactly. It's, uh, surely that's one of the things you've got to tick off the bucket list, Stephen. I'd, yeah, well, yeah, I'd love to. I mean, I, I have been fortunate to work for the PDC on a couple of occasions uh, in uh, Japan and also China a little while ago, and also the, the local edition. But I've I got to say, it would be fun to go to a, a really, really big sort of tournament that sits on their calendar and goes, this is the one you've got to be at. Because it's crazy, man. It's the, the, the people that run that are like, uh, they're almost like gypsies because they literally follow that tour around. And you what you discover, Paul, is the people that come out here and then go around with the World Series primarily are a lot of the people, and this is the people that set up, set up you know, the, the, the Oki, the whole nine yards, and uh, the comedy team, travel. And they travel and travel. I spoke to one of these guys, Paul. I, I, I digress. Uh, and he, yep. sa- he said they literally only have three weeks off a year. And they are constantly traveling around uh, England, Europe, and then around the world for the World Series. It's, it's fascinating. It's like a traveling circus. Uh, it's got- completely that, mate. If you think <laughs> F1's a circus, this is a circus. And trust me, some of the characters you'd think are part of a circus. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm just having a look. Here's a couple of big, big games on tomorrow. Is a game due, well, scheduled to start uh, just before 5 o'clock tomorrow morning, uh, Jose D'Souza. He's a favourite, $1.66 favourite against the Aussie, the Wizard, Simon Whitlock, who is $2.13. Uh, and then the biggest game of the, I guess, the late morning series for us, Steve Beaton, $1.36 up against Danny, uh, Danny Van Tripp at two ninety five. What, so what a great plenty. name. What a great name, Danny Van Tripp. <laughs> hey, can I just can I just jump back and you can flick up your um, odds on the NFL because NFL, I'd, yeah. I'd like to know how hot Philadelphia are to go all the way. I know their record is ridiculous, but are they outright favourites to take to win Super Bowl? Uh, not with us, no. They're on the they're the second favourites to win the Super Bowl at the moment. They're five dollars uh, behind Josh Allen and the Buffalo Bills at four dollars and thirty three cents. Gee, that's pretty good money, um, so, isn't it? That's at, at, at this stage of the season, is five bucks good to pick a pick a win like that? Well, they they keep doing the business, don't they? They've only been beaten once this season. Um, they look at, they look on, good on both sides of the ball. Um, what yeah, what, what am I, I what am I Dallas Cowboys like? Uh, you get them at ten dollars. Okay, right. I'm, I'm not someone that throws money out, but I might have to throw a little bit of money on that just for the hell of it. Okay. Have, you got <laughs> anything, have, have you got anything for me before I let you go and, you know, get off the fence? Well, something to get on. Okay, get, what do you got? Get on. Get, give me something to get on. <laughs> or as they sound well, out, is get on. <laughs> I'm get just on. having a look at a wee bit of the, the big bash, of course, uh, which is uh, underway. Uh, the Hurricanes, Hobart Hurricanes hosting yeah. the Perth Scorchers tonight. Uh, the Hurricanes, slight favourites at $1.78. The Scorchers, $1.95. There was an extraordinary game, uh, what was it, a, a few days ago. Oh, where, Sydney, um, Sydney all out for 15, wasn't it? Yeah, that was... Uh, I thought... I'm, I'm just watching a highlights package. <laughs> no. Where are you watching that? I've got every screen on. I can't find it. What are you watching it on? Well, no, I, when I watched the game live, oh, I sorry. thought I was watching a highlight package. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we're, we're yeah. done here, mate. Um, if I, yeah. I think I'm back Thursday, Friday. I'm sure we'll have a little yak then, okay? Look forward to it, Stephen. Yeah, likewise, buddy. Take care. Paul Moatu from the TAB R18. Remember, gamble responsibly. It's 344. 
3.51 on SEN and SENZ around New Zealand if you are listening on the app. Hello to you wherever you are around the world. Motown Monday on the run home with Stephen McIver, Kieran and Nerve. And here is how, this is the cream of the crop brought to you by Grain Corp Feeds, your trusted partner for quality summer dairy feed options. And it's called a demolition, an Australian demolition, right? Last time this happened, a, a test was over in Two days was 1932. Hear that? 1932. All right. 34 wickets in six sessions. Absolutely ridiculous. They only Australia needed, they beat, they beat the Proteas by six wickets. They rolled for South Africa for 99 on a Sunday afternoon and chased a 34 run target for only the loss of four wickets. Unbelievable. Actually, I'm lied. I told a fib. It was 1931. I was out by a year. But that's what you call a demolition. And there's been lots of talk already. People are saying this is ridiculous. It was a green top wicket. It was too quick, unplayable, and all that sort of thing. But you know what? It does ask the question, was that test cricket? Or was that just a flash one day, Kieran? I wonder. Do we think that it was a flash, an extended one day, or that sort of, that sort of level? But that was, our, that was our cream of the crop. Congratulations, Aussies. Congratulations again, mate. That was great. Uh, and courtesy of Grand Court Feeds, you're part of a high-quality dry and liquid summer dairy feed options supplying farmers nationwide. Well, Stephen McIver, Karen and Niv, and the, the lads are sitting in the control room, you know, basically like puppeteers, making sure I do the right things and say the, most of the right things, but it's time to put them under the spotlight for at least ooh, a good two minutes at least to ask them what their wish for Christmas is. Now, it doesn't have to have be anything material. So I'm going to go to Niv first because he's my Motown man. He, he's, he's so, did you like the idea of Motown music today, Niv? Oh, I love it. It's right up my alley. Yeah, why, yeah, but why don't you actually tell everybody what you said? Oh, yeah, my dad listens to that as well. Well, you've, you've added your certain tone to it. <laughs> Your own sort of wording. Um, all I said was, "Oh yeah, that's a bit of my dad's music." Yeah, which thanks is a, very much. Which is a compliment because he has amazing so, taste in music. You are so full of it today. Absolutely <laughs> so full of it. Okay, so what is your Christmas wish? It does not have to be material because I think we get a bit too wound up in the whole consumerism of, of Christmas. Whether you're religious or not, it doesn't matter. What is your Christmas wish? Oh. 
Well, I feel like you've pre- prefaced that with me not listing a material item. Uh, <laughs> you can, though. I did say you can. I said you can. We, a, we were just going to say can you just undies get and on socks. With, can you just get on with it? No, look, okay, so I'm I'm moving to Australia next year. So Are you? So I really want to just spend oh. the time with uh, with my family up north in the Bay of Islands where I grew up. And, uh, yeah, just soak up the, sam- the family time and pray that it's sunny and La Nina doesn't cut into our beach time. That's beautiful. Thanks, mate. Uh, what are you going to Oz for? Um, pff, money. <laughs> right, let's move on from that one. Uh, okay. Well, I feel really bad now. Liv's just oh, coming with a really da, lovely no, one. He's just playing that card. He's I just was, playing that yeah, card. I was going to say, look, I've already got my present this morning. I got this guy right here, Stephen. Who's this? Well, people can't oh, see. No, I'm asking oh. you the to announce it. Oh, that's Messi it won a Messi. World Messi Cup. Messi won a World Cup. That's what I wanted for Christmas. Seriously? Uh, and Lynx Africa. I could do with another one. I, think, uh, I feel uh, like it's just South Christmas Africa. spirit. <laughs> you know, Lynx Africa. Uh, Lynx Socks Af- and undies. Uh, and socks I get an orange every year as well. Uh, so, Have that. Uh, Lynx Africa. I used to work Link, but I use roll-ons now, right? Because aerosols aren't good for the environment, dude. Yes, you're right. So, uh, And that's all you want. Wow, you guys are, well, one of you's a bit deeper. You're a bit shallow, Karen, really. What, Messi winning a World <laughs> Cup? No, it was the other stuff. <laughs> <laughs> My links are, yeah. links are. That's a good shout, it, you know? it's, it's a good, It's a good shout and not too wanty. So that's all right. It's almost four o'clock. Coming your way after four o'clock, we'll play back an interview we had with the uh, motorsport icon in this country, uh, Kenny Smith, about his thoughts on saying goodbye to Pukeko and we'll play the drive to survive. Don't call yet. We'll tell you when to call, Okay. On SCNZ. CNZ on a Motown Monday, the 19th of December, 2022, with Stephen O'Kiver. That is Sam and Dave, just from down the road, called, oh, oh, oh hold on, ow, oh, hold on, it's 4.05, let's check out the Macca's menu, get your Macca's favourites delivered with Macca Delivery, coming shortly, the motorsporting icon Kenny Smith, his memories of Fukukoi, where he spoke to myself and GM Racing 51, that's Greg Murphy, but that's his hashtag, that's his uh, Instagram handle. Uh, about the demise of Pukako. Also, will play Drive to Survive and, and basically just talk some trash before five o'clock. So, that's a lot to look forward to, I can tell you now, with McDelivery delivering your Macca's favourites straight to your door. S E N Z. There was the news a couple of weeks ago, and we were quite taken aback. 
Although I once moved and I went to the facilities, we understand why. Uh, no more Pukekohe Park Raceway after April 2023, which is its 60th year. And one man that knows all about that is Kenny Smith, and he joins us right now. Hey, Kenny, how are you? Good. So, Kenny, talk to us. Well, what's your first? Yeah. Me- what's your first memory of Pukekohe? Well, the first memory was getting there in 1962 in an old Cooper sports car, and uh, you know it was something fantastic to have a track built close to where you live. And uh, no, it was a great place, and it's just so sad to see it disappearing. When it did first open, though, and the the construction, I don't know, I don't know how long that would have taken, and but the the design of the track and 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 for the first time when you drove on it, um, was it was it something amazing? Do you remember thinking, "Wow, what a spectacular place this is! What an incredible racetrack!" Well, I did because in, in those early days, every track we went to was incredible. You know, it was exciting to go motor racing. So every time you got the opportunity to go somewhere different, it was great. And, you know, it's just, it is sad. But I would say, look, it's, uh, we've had some good times there. And uh, I sort of go back to the times when we're running in over the top of the hill. There was no protection. You, when you got onto the grass, you were lucky if you didn't end up in the creek. And, you know, going back in the 60s, there was a Mini Cooper S, in particular one I drove with a guy, and uh, he ended up sticking in the creek and there was only the roof hanging out. Um, and he, he climbed out <laughs> through the back window. So, you know, and then they had a uh, an, an oak tree up there and uh, and an angler ended up hitting it side on into the door, the passenger's door, and it ended up with about the size of a single seater widthwise. So, you know, the, the track's come a long, long way for safety since then. I mean, that's how tracks were. Um, when you go down the front straight and to turn one, um, there was buildings and all sorts of steel hanging off the side of the track and cameramen lying on the side of the track taking photos of you going by right on the grass edge. Uh, <laughs> You've raced around the world, Kenny. How would you rate Pukekohe Park Raceway when it comes to a a, a, a driver's track? Well, it, it is a good driver's track because it's got a bit of speed in it and, uh, you know, if you're brave enough with cars, you can get some good speed over the hill and round turn one especially with turn one with all the bumps that they used to have in it because the drains from Pukekohe run underneath the ground there and the saw sinking, doesn't matter how much work they do on it, it seems to get a sinkage there quite often. And uh, when a car hits that, it gets a bit mean. But if you're brave enough, you can get around there without lifting off in some cars. And the cars bounce around, but you, you hang in there. But sort of going back to the days of the, the 1976 and won the Grand Prix there in a 5,000 car, um, there was always this... Uh, contest between everybody saying you could never get a 5,000 flat round turn one. Well, I did, but it was only a mistake because I went down there and just past the start line, I'm looking at the oil temperature gauge, oil pressure gauge was jumping up and down and I thought, oh, that's weird. And then when I got to the corner, I still had my head down looking at the gauge and I got such a shock. I didn't even lift off. I, I swung the wheel hard into that corner and it went round. I thought, my God, that went round easy. And I actually threw it in there. So it took me 12 or 13 laps after that before I could do it again. And I remember Graham Lawrence was standing with my father over the pit wall in practice, and he said, how's he doing that? Well, I won't tell you what he said, because that wouldn't be nice on radio. But uh, by the time the weekend was over, there was three or four of those Australians and Graham going around there without lifting off in top gear. And, you know, that was fantastic to me. And then, of course, the You're always, he did, always uh, a leader. Uh, <laughs> You're always a leader. Yeah, <laughs> I shouldn't have told him I did it by mistake, should I? <laughs> when, um, when you talk about great battle, when you talk about great battles that you've had, who are some of the drivers you know, and, and names that we would remember that you've had a good go with? 
Well, you could David Oxton in particular and uh, Graham Lawrence, you could always come over the hill. We used to have some real strong battles over the hill there where we had cars side by side, even wheels interlocked coming up there. But you knew you could trust those guys not to swing into you any harder. And if it needs easing off, you could just about read their mind and you'd part away from them again. And those are two drivers I really respected racing against. You know, they were great. But um, I mean, there's a lot of fantastic... Yeah, yeah. Tell us about the other fantastic drivers that you competed against at Pukekohe, you know, all through the, you know, back in the heydays and the Tasman series. I mean, the, the list of names is just unbelievable. Well, it was an honour to be in a race when you had like Jim Clark, Graham Hill, Jackie Stewart, Sterling Moss, and, and all those, McLaren, Holm, Amon, Surtees, you could just ramble on forever with these names. Yeah. And it was an honour to be racing in a race, even though we were getting lapped up three quarters of the way through a race because we only had smaller cars, but it didn't matter. They were nice people. You could talk to them. They were just like you and I would be chatting now, where today it would be totally different in Formula One. You struggled to go and even talk to some of them. So, you know, it's 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 been fantastic memories and it's, I suppose you look back in the old days, but things do move ahead. And uh, But it is sad when you've been around long enough and you look at some of those uh, guys that come out here, they were fantastic. You know, I even got the, uh, and, and it was sort of felt like a bit of an honour in those days to help. Um, about two hours before the start of a Grand Prix, Jimmy Clark had a stone go through a fuel bag and they forgot to bring a fuel repair kit out, which meant he wasn't going to run. And one of the guys said, there must be a car here with a fuel bag in it. And uh, they said, no, they never made fuel bags. They said, yes, they did. They put one in a Lotus 41. He said, and that guy down there's got one. So they came down, and uh, Colin Chapman was here that year, and they came and, had, and they said, have you got a fuel kit? And I said, I don't know. And I said, I've got a box of gear, and I bought the car, so we scabbled through this box. And here was a little square box, about six inches square, with a fuel repair kit in it. So they said, just we need to borrow it. Can we take it and we'll get, replace it? Well, they took it away, and they got in time to get it going and uh, glued her up. They sealed up pretty quick. And um, about nine months later, I thought they'd forgotten about my fuel repair stuff, and uh, nine months later, there was a box arrived, and like it was obviously a foot square and about six inches deep and had more repair kits than you'd ever need in your life to repair <laughs> with, a, with a note from Chapman, which, you know, I thought that was great. <laughs> and you always found that they were easy people to deal with. You know, you could ask them questions about a car and they'd tell you. I remember with that 41 in particular, it was a mongrel on brakes. Every time you hit the brakes, it would dart left and right and it was quite spooky to drive. And I talked to Bruce McLaren about it. He said, take the toe in off the front and put toe out because that's what we run now and you won't have any trouble. As soon as we did that, you could have let the steering wheel go under brakes. Um, but, you know, I know it's silly today if you ask someone to, you know, in a, in a high-profile job, they wouldn't tell you. <laughs> Uh, of of the drivers that you competed against, and, and those names that you t- spoke about, who was the who was the special one? Who did you when you looked and went, yeah, they they're just a cut above the rest. Well, I had a um, I, I, I like Jimmy Clark for some reason. I mean, I know there was guys as good as him going round, and uh, but you know he was just such a friendly guy, and I mean they all were, but he just was something special. And I was a Lotus fanatic because that's. I never ever owned Brabham's. I always owned Lotuses, and uh, and people used to say you need to buy a Brabham; they're a bit easier to drive. But I, I was a Lotus fanatic, so and that's what sort of kept me on the scene. I remember when Clark had his shunt at uh, at back straight at Pukekohe, the bodywork nose cone got all damaged, and uh, 
my father and I had a paint shop in Newmarket, so we got the job to repair his nose on that car. And, and then I put the nose on my Lotus I had and, and it fit it on, just sat it on, took photos of it, just to try and convince someone that I'd bought Clark's car because had his name and everything <laughs> on the side of the... <laughs> 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 and, and, of course, the worst thing is we go out to a meeting after all had gone later and somebody had put the room around that I'd bought Jimmy Clark's car. So we had the covered-up trailer and as we backed the car out of the trailer, I had a big sheet over it and you could see the guy standing around to see Clark's car in there. But when I unveiled it, it was red. <laughs> but they honestly thought that it was in there. <laughs> that was Johnny Riley and Red Dawson in those days. And they said, oh, you bought that car. I said, no, 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 you're lying to us. <laughs> see, see, that was, but those was, that was the fun. That was the fun stuff back in the day, you know, the, the, it, all it that was. kind of thing that went on. Yeah, in those days, it was just different now it's just uh, it's the pressure's totally harder than now i mean in them days we did work all night with greasy hands and jump into a car 10 minutes before a race started and you're still trying to do some work on it from the night before we've even been to pukekohe and fitted an engine in a car worked all night and built an engine up and taken the car out on the trail and fitted it out there before a race i mean um you know i know it sounds crazy you wouldn't do that sort of thing today um the early days i had we ran on a pretty light budget when they had a Lola Formula Junior, and to get through scrutiny, I had to had to do the old trick. I had to get the black tyre nugget out and put it over the canvas that was showing on the front tyres, so we could race and get through. <laughs> <laughs> now, no, she wouldn't drive around the pits with a tyre like that. But oh no, look, that they were some magic days, and it it is sad that it's stopping. And you know, when we got the GP in '76. The old 5,000 car only did 100 miles on a tank full. She had to be very careful you got to the finish. And I had a reasonable good lead in that. And with about two to three laps to go, it kept cutting out on the top of the hill. It was running out of fuel. And Max Stewart from Australia, he'd broken down and he was in the pits, my father. And as I came by with two to go, I pointed to the cockpit, the side of the, the side pod, meaning I need fuel. And Max had picked up on this quick. So he teed it up with the old man to just fire an open tin in it, take the, take the cap off, don't even bother putting the cap back on and hope that I keep the engine going. Well, I went in the pits, and in those days, you could go through the pits at 150 miles an hour with no restrictions <laughs> on speed. And it was a lot different than it is now. You come off the hill and just keep it flat and go straight down there. So he came, with a lap to go, I thought, I've got a fuel. So I came in there, and as I came in, the engine picked up again, and like an idiot, I drove straight out the other end and stand there with a the tin. And, and then when I got past down on the back straight, I thought, oh, my God, I've got a problem. I swung the car left and right, and, and then I de-clutched so far down the straight because I had about a 17, 18-second lead. And when I got to the hairpin, I gave it death out of there. I thought, this thing's going to coast home if I don't get over the hill. <laughs> but anyway, we did, got there, and uh, to get it back to the pits after, we had to keep swinging it left and right just to pick up the last few drops because... They uh, barely made it with 100. 100 miles was a lot for those cars. So, but you do you have a lot of fun, don't you? Kenny, when, why did you get into motor racing? What, what was the reason behind it? I mean, 60 years plus of racing now. Well, I was just a nut for cars in those early days. And uh, my father used to do all mechanical work and stuff like that. So he was involved in doing that. And we were car painting at the same time. And, and I ended up buying a little Ford 8 Special um, from a bus driver in Crummer Road in 
at Ponsonby Way one night. I made up my mind, will I buy a road car or that? No, I've got to buy that. It was, I mean, it was a terrible thing. Was, you can imagine a Ford 8. It had no horsepower. <laughs> and, uh, but at any rate, that started it to do hill climbs and that. And then uh, then along came the Bruce McLaren Austin Ulster, which uh, was a magic little car. So we ended up racing that at Ardmore as well and uh, went on from there and progressed into a sports car and then started on single-seaters then with a Lola front-engine Formula Junior. And it never stopped. And, you know, my father did heaps of work. He built the motors. Even, even the old 5,000 days, he was rebuilding all those engines. We'd bring parts out in the States and rebuild, and he'd do all that. So it was a family thing we had. You know, my mother went to every meeting. Uh, my nieces were there time-keeping. So it never... It was just a whole family outing, and we loved it. What's the best car you've driven? I'd have to say the 5,000 Lola. The most dangerous car, but the best car. <laughs> they, they try to kill you or shorten your legs. They had the word Lola limp. That was for tall guys that broke their legs in it. <laughs> but mine were on the steering wheel. I, I actually remember <laughs> that was just, just on 12 inches rods with the pedals brought back, length to the, um, to the masters on us. So we were a long way back, but... <laughs> That was a bit of safety for me. Hey, you've um, you've 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 just been a stalwart for single seater racing for ever since you began racing. I mean, it's it's just been your love, your passion. Uh, you've driven everything that's um, had wings and slicks, and and um, also you know, big advocate for Formula Ford uh, for a very very long long time as well. What? How many how many races do you think you've done with in a car with a roof on it? Well, amazing. A lot of people think that I haven't done a lot, but I have done quite a lot. I mean, we did a lot of Benson Hedges and did three-hour races they had at Pukekohe and then the Benson Hedges races plus the ones they had all around the country. You know, I ended up driving Pamia Motors Falcon with Jack Nozer and from there we raced uh, XY Falcon. Uh, that caused a bit of grief in the B&H. We're after the class win and that, and then Ford rung up and said to me, look, we've got the XAs and we want you to drive one of those. And I said, well, good. When will you be able to get it to me? And they said, oh, no, you'll have to buy it. And so I did tell them, <laughs> in my true words, what they could do with it. I said, this thing will blow that bloody XA away. So we did. We blew them away by laps and the XY, and that, that one, very happy to them. <laughs> Despite the fact that you've done, me you did Nissan Mobiles. You did the, the Nissan Mobiles, uh, Wellington Street races and stuff too, yeah? Yeah, did that in uh, Falcon for South Auckland Motors with Roger Free. Yeah. yeah, we had a lot of fun in those. And I drove a number of Mini Cooper S's, Lotus Cortinas. So w- when I think about it, even though I'm not, uh, I'm more love of an open wheeler, there's probably a dozen different saloon cars we've run. You know, I drove Red Dawson's Camaro at Bay Park and just, you know, it just keeps going on and on. But, oh, it's been good. But the, the greatest thing I love is, is Formula Ford. When I see the talent that New Zealand's got and has had for years, and to bring them up, kids up in the Formula Ford, when they master the gear lever and the and the heel and towing and getting into that and driving them right, then you can stick them in the wings and slicks car, and then you get the results. So you know that's something we never want to lose. The greatest drivers in the world drove Formula Fords all around the world, and that's even the Australians are raving about it now. They've got to keep it going in there because that's where they're getting some of their drivers for the V8s, aren't they? S E N Z. 421, that was uh, myself and uh, Greg Murphy uh, talking to the great 
Kenny Smith, who at 81 years of age continues to, ha- to have this desire to keep racing and racing cars fast. He loves his Formula 5000 and he still can race them quick. But it reminds us, of course, that we have this magnificent summer of motor racing to look forward to in the uh, Super Sprint uh, Motorsport New Zealand uh, Championship Series coming. It starts at Highland Park in Cromwell on the weekend of the 13th to 15th of January 2023 with the, it's now, it's not, it's now, it's Castrol Toyota New Zealand Series, it's actually the, it's called the Formula Regional Series by the FIA, they've actually, the FIA have come out and said, and this is really integral if you follow your motorsport, uh, that the open toppers, which are the Castrol TRS cars, have now been recognised as a Formula Regional Series by the FIA, what that means is that uh, young drivers from Europe can come across and if they're good enough to win the series, they can pick up what they call super license points. Now, those super license points go an enormous way to giving them the chance to become Formula One drivers. So so basically, you win the series this year or next year, should I say, you can pick up 18 super license points and they'll go all the way down to ninth position. And I think you need about 36 super license points to be eligible to drive a Formula One car. So super license points primarily are considered gold. They are the gold standard when it comes to motorsports. So the fact that the Castrol Toyota Racing Series Formula Regional, whatever, it's a hell of a, I think we're just going to call it Castrol TRS4 Formula Regional as we do the broadcast, uh, it has a lot of significance. But of course, there's also the Toyota 86s, there's going to be Formula Fords, there's going to be the Utes are back, there's going to be the uh, Golden Homes GT New Zealand Championship as well. So it's a it's a busy, busy summer around five consecutive weekends in a row. And also, can't forget my fave. Valvoline D1NZ's thrown in there as well as one of the rounds as well. I think it's actually happening on Grand Prix weekend at Hampton Downs. I'm sure those uh, purists of the Open aren't going to be happy when those boys are screaming and going sideways and dropping some rubber on the track, but I love it. Actually, speaking of uh, Valvoline D1NZ, congratulations to two-time champion Cole Armstrong, one of the loveliest and loosest blokes I ever know. But... I spoke to him today and congratulated him because him and his partner Lydia uh, have, are the recipients, should I say, of a little baby boy, Theo, born the other day. And i got to say, uh, that crazy mofo that he is, uh, is sounds like a besotted young daddy. So congratulations to Cole and Lydia on the arrival of uh, little Theo the other day because it's a, it's a great time. And he said to me, man, I'm back at work, but he says, I don't want to be at work. I really want to be hanging around with Theo, and he's going to get some time with him, and then hopefully he and I will make some mayhem with Valvoline D1NZ a little bit later on. Actually, the, some of the best news that's come out of motorsport in the last uh, 48 hours is the fact that uh, Valentino Rossi is going to be racing, uh, is going to be racing in uh, the uh, Liqui Molly Bathurst 12-hour. Now, he's been racing. He's turned his attention to endurance racing in the last 12 months, racing an Audi. He's actually going to be racing um, uh, for a Belgian squad, and they're going to be racing a BMW. So that's something to look forward to, a BMW M4 GT3. Nice. So that's something to look forward to. Very nice. Uh, Valentino Rossi, seven-time MotoGP champion, just across the ditch next year, racing in the Bathurst 12-hour. 
12.29, almost, in fact, almost half past four, and uh, Johnny is coming up shortly. But just a quick note, you can get on the blinder right now. This is your, what they call, cue to call to play Drive to Survive. Get on the Makita New Zealand phone line. You can rule the outdoors with Makita Power Garden Tools. 0800 150811. That's 0800 150811. Now is your chance to win some goods for Christmas. Well, a $50 bonus, but anyway, from our good friends at the TAB. Because Paul knows exactly what he's doing. You can probably ring Paul and ask him for his advice and see what he got on the grapevine. So 0800-150811. 1-0800-150811. Come and play with me. Come on. That's the Makita phone line. Makita, who are ruling the outdoors. It's a new dawn. It's a new day. It's a new life for me. Yeah, it's a new dawn. It's a new day. New life for me. And I'm feeling good. Fish in the sea, you know how I feel. River running free, you know how I feel. Blossom on. How could you not feel good after that on a Motown Monday in Inner Simone? And I'm feeling good. And if you're like me and you're a fan of <clears throat> Michael Bublé, he does a pretty good version of that, Kieran, I can tell you. And the video is even better. It's got a, a James Bond theme to it. If you want to play Drive to Survive, get on that M- Makita New Zealand phone line, 0800 That's 0800 Because you know what? Makita ruled the outdoors. This is Drive to Survive. So it's 4.34, time to Drive to Survive, the $50 TAB voucher up for grabs. And first on the line is Kerry from uh, Manawatu. G'day, buddy. How are you? Yeah, hey, Steve. All right? Yeah, I'm good. If you call me Steve, you won't be playing again, though. Can you... <laughs> are you all right, mate? Are you still with me? Or you've just hung up on me? I'm good, good, good. Okay, what was my name again? I forgot. Ah, oh, that's me. We'll take we'll take that one, buddy. All right, you ready to play Drive to House? Hey, look, uh, is Christmas a big deal for you, or is it just one of those days that rolls into another one? Another one on the farm, mate. Oh, how big's the farm, pal? Oh, it's big enough to have to work Christmas Day. Oh, so so we're mana with two, so we dairy, right? No, sheep and cattle. Sheep and cattle. Well, okay, well, bugger me. How about that? I've been put in my place. How many are you running? About 800 acres here. Wow. What about how much stock? How much stock? Uh, three or 4,000 lambs and about uh, 600 head of cattle. Oh, well, at least Christmas dinner's sorted, eh? <laughs> okay. Are you ready to go? Let's go. All right, let's go lap one. We're on to lap one. Question number one. Who won the golden boot at the 2022 FIFA World Cup? Have to be messy. This is the worst start for a Grand Prix that I have ever seen. Nah, 
Sorry about that. Stay on the line, mate. You never know. We could be coming back. All right, we go to number two is Ed in Tolaga Bay. Hey, Ed, how are you, buddy? Long time no speak. Cheer, my friend. How hey, are you? How, hey, um, how are you, my brother? Um, are you well? I'm good, thanks, man. I've, I've got four more days left, and I'm off to Tolaga Bay for my Christmas. Ah, oh, bro, that sounds so good. All right, so here's the question for you on lap one. Yeah. Who won the golden boot at the 2022 FIFA World Cup? Man, that's got to be Mbappe. I'm sure he's got eight. Boom! First question. All right. Nice work, Prowl. Here we go. Here comes question number two, lap one. How many runs did the Sydney Thunder score against the Adelaide Strikers last Friday in the Big Bash League? Oh, man, was that those guys who only got 15? Okay, you 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 you're taking the you're taking it out of me here today. You, you're all you're you're. I mean, there's a question coming up, but I won't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, all right, hang on, hang on, my bro. Here we go. Steve Borthwick will reportedly be named. It will be reportedly be named as a head coach of England rugby. Which club does he currently coach? Leicester. Oh, okay, smutty. Oh, that was a guess. <laughs> All right, let's keep going, shall we? Last question in lap number one. Mick Schumacher will join which F1 team as a reserve driver in 2023? This is going to be a big guess. Um, Schumacher. Um, Come on. Russell, 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 Russell. Alpha Romero? Alpha, Alpha? Front left tires. Oh, yeah, you can see oh, it's okay. <laughs> okay, stay there. Stay there. You never know. Hang on. You're not right there. Who are we going to next? We're going to Barry in Palmas North. G'day, Barry. Yep. How are you going, guys? Yeah, we're good, thanks. All right, so the question for you in lap one. It's the last question of lap one, and you get this one. Yep. We'll go on to lap number two. Mick Schumacher will join which F1 team as a reserve driver in 2023? McLaren. Excuse, excuse me? McLaren? His engine has blown. Okay, so we're we going back to Kerry at the top of the tree, are we? Look, I mean, if you want to, Sam, we have the ability to jackpot here if you want to. Nah, I'll I'm, leave I'm, it up to I'm, you. It's I'm Christmas. To, it's Christmas, Let's mate. have another go. Let's have another go, Let's Kerry. Go are you still nah, there, Zade's, Kerry? Zade's up next. Oh, sorry, Zade. Sorry, Kerry, but Zade's up next right now. Zadie, how are you? Yeah, all good, isn't it, Mercedes? Yes, you are right, Zado. Well done, buddy. All right, nice to have you on board. How are you doing, mate? Are you all prepping up for Christmas and just relaxed or what? Yeah, just chilling in the city of sales, loving the sun of Sabo, so yeah. <laughs> Got a quiet one beside you, pal? Sort of the day you have a quiet one beside you? Maybe not. Okay, uh, which, this is lap number two now, Zade. Which Canterbury all-rounder has received his maiden call-up to the Black Caps squad? I believe that's, um, is it Shipley? Correct it is, Henry Shipley. All right, let's see how good you are this one. I know you love your sports, Aid, so let's have a crack at this one. Question two, lap two. How many times has the FIFA World Cup final been decided by penalties? Oh, is it two times? This is the worst start for a Grand Prix that I have ever seen. Okay. Okay, can't do it now, so we go back up to Kerry. Hey, Kerry, how are you? 
Yeah, good, mate. Okay, here's the question. Lap two. Question two. How many times has the FIFA World Cup final been decided by penalties? Clues. Say again. No, no clues. clues. Okay, I'll go three. Okay, very good. Now, the next question, I have no idea what it means because it doesn't make any sense. What does it say? I can't answer that. Mine's quite good. Well, I've got... You asked the question, then. You asked question three for me. All right. Uh, Who did the Boston Celtics lose to in the NBA this morning? Well, my, my answer's all wrong. What's your answer? Oh, sorry. sorry. I'm not going to tell you that. Sorry, mate. <laughs> Gary, can I get a guess out of you first, please? Who did the Boston Celtics lose to in the NBA this morning? Uh, I'll say the, the uh, Grizzlies. Front left tires. Yeah, you can see it's starting to shred. Was that wrong? I can't understand. Was that wrong? Okay. Can you mouth to me the answer, please? Okay, fine. So we go back to Ed and Tolliga Bay. <laughs> okay, so who did the Celtics lose to this morning? Magic. All right. All right. Hey, mate, you, one more question. You won the whole lot. You won the whole shebang. But you've got to get it right. Okay? Here we go. This for the $50 bonus bet, right? This for the $50 bonus bet, Ed. In what year? Did Australia last win a home test match within two days? In what year? Yeah, listen up again. I'll give you a second crack at it. The question, at least. In what year did Australia last win a home test match within two days? I mentioned it earlier today. Sorry, Stephen, I wasn't listening, but I'll have a guess. I'll go um, 2011. No. Okay. All right. Thanks, buddy. Appreciate that one. So let's go to uh, Barry in Palmerston North. Barry, you're still alive here? Yeah. What year? Um, what year? Well, they won it yesterday. But, yes, uh, but what did uh, they last win a home yeah, test match? No, I, I, I'm going to say 1936. Front left tires. Yeah, you can see it's oh, Okay. We'll give one more crack. Should we give one more crack? All right, all right. Oh, you don't want you into the jackpot, this, don't you? Oh, I don't know. We're out of music now. I feel like we're okay, uh, we'll we'll lost. On. Hang on. Who's 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 that on? Still online? No, we just had Barry there. I think okay, he wants so, another crack. He thinks no, he's got can't it. Another, he well, can't have another, another crack. It. He's not allowed another crack. All right, we're done then. I'll so, be the Grinch. So, so you can be the Grinch. So we got to lap three. Will we ask this question? Will you guys ask this yeah, question so this, tomorrow? This will now be the first question. Next, okay, tomorrow. So, so tomorrow, $100. if you're listening, we're jackpotting it to a hundred dollar TAB bonus bet. And the question you can write down now, and then you can look it up, will be: In what year did Australia last win a home test match within two days? Oh, that was so exciting! It's four forty-two. Sometimes I get a good feeling, yeah.
It must be love. Hey, this is SCNZ and Etta James. What was the song called again? I feel good. No. Something's got a hold on me. Something's got a hold on me. Something. I repent. I believe. I believe. Stephen, can I paint a picture for the people? Sorry. (laughs) Please, let me paint a picture for the people. Right. When I find out that song... Instantly, the headphones come flying off from Stephen. He gets up. He starts waving the arms. It's like the the spirit of Maradona was travelling through the station. We were all running around. We left the studio for a good while. I shouldn't say that, actually, because the boss is listening. But 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 it's such a good song. It's such an inspirational song, right, when you think about it. You can dance, Stephen. Uh, Whoa, settle down, You can dance. Uh, Hey, whoa. I would love to be able to sing. That's what I would love to be able to do. Do you remember when we sung gold last week? Yeah, no, no, we don't. We don't talk about it. You know Saskia, who works here. Yeah, she can sing. Yeah, she got a band, right? Yeah, and she can sing. And she she started just humming and singing a little bit out here. Man, that girl has got the voice of an angel. She can sing. She can. She, girlfriend got it going on. What's the name of her band? Do you know the name of her band? What's it called? Oh, she's just looking at me going, do not talk to me about it. Anyway, it's Christmas. Got to have a little bit of fun. Hey, I forgot to tell you after we spoke to Kenny Smith, our motorsport icon, that this Thursday, back here, me, you, and Niv, right, two to six, Scott McLaughlin live, Scotty Mac, Scotty Mac live at three o'clock right here on SCNZ. Following day, the man that he looked up to, the old fella, Greg Murphy. So Thursday, 3 p.m., Scotty McLaughlin. 3 p.m. Friday, Scotty Mac. It's not bad. Not bad for Christmas. To reminder, of course, Thursday, 3 p.m. live here on The Run Home, Scotty, Scotty Mac. That's right, Scott McLaughlin. And 3 o'clock Friday is uh, the guy looked up to in his young karting days, the old fella. <laughs> he hates that because he's turned 50 now. Uh, Greg Murphy. Stephen, just while you're on the topic, I know you're a big petrol head. Oh, slightly. Just, uh, well, it's quite fitting that you're on the show. Uh, this show <laughs> is the show of racing. I know you did uh, race control, but this guy mm-hmm. knows it all. Max Van Strappen. Max Van Strappen. Uh, he's, he went quite well last year, didn't he? Sorry, B. I just saw that on the bar. Had to Max play it. Stra- Max, Max Van Strappen. Hang on. Sorry, B. Max Van Strappen. <laughs> <laughs> that's good, that's good. No, but seriously, just while I had you here, Stephen. Danny Rick, right? Daniel Ricciardo. Dan- Daniel Ricciardo. Yeah. Uh, wh- why is he a reserve driver now? Well, because he, he had a... He, so he went to Renault after getting the... the, the, the he was, you know, he had, he had the pricker because mm-hmm. Max Verstappen came in and basically was usurped his, his sort of ability to be a, a leading driver at Red Bull, went to Renault for a chunk of change. That didn't really work out. He, he should have stayed because the car was getting better. Then McLaren came along, which is an iconic brand, understandably, and the car was poo. And he didn't adjust to it as well as Lando Norris. This is a guy that's won the Monaco Grand Prix. He's won eight Grand Prix. Grands, you say Grands Prix, eight Grands Prix. Uh, and that's just how it worked out. So it's a real shame because he's – but he's because of the drive to survive and, and who he is – that's why he has such an enormous uh, popularity amongst socials and the like. So he's gone, and so he's got, gone back to Red Bull as not their reserve driver because our very own Liam Lawson mm, true, sorry, is the apologies. reserve driver. Yeah, so right. He's basically Ricardo's taking year out, uh, sort of. He's not going to be at every Grand Prix, and he'll be the promo driver. But <laughs> so the, he's, yeah. he's like the one driving around the Red Bull cans. That's the thing. <laughs> you say he's won eight Grand Prix. Yep. And and now he's taking the year off. What is there for him next year? Who knows? Is it Audi? 
Well, no, what, that's a what year. That's no, that's that's a couple of years away. Because so. he, he can't go to Alpine, he can't go to Romeo unless he just waits Mate, for a seat. So just what does wait he do? See what now? happens. Just remember one thing: if Sergio Perez doesn't, you know, open up, but I would like to think that maybe young Liam Lawson gets a nudge as well. But I don't know. So Is he there yet? You're gonna, Liam Lawson, gonna yes take, or no? Pardon? Yes or no? Is Liam Lawson there yet? No. No. no, and I think Fair. this move to Super Formula next year is exciting for him, but I'm beginning to wonder whether the window has closed mm. on that F1 dream. But in that game, never say never. Stick around on the run home coming next. Justin Morgan, assistant Warriors coach, and we'll talk to Barat Sundaresan about that crazy two-day test. Five oh four on a Monday afternoon. It's Motown Monday. Nothing better than Stevie Wonder, and you know Sir Duke. We can feel it all over. I know one man who man. I know one man who can feel it all over because Christmas is coming close, and it seems like the year's there. And then there's preseason. Can we just have a break? His assistant Warriors coach Justin Morgan. Hello, Morgs. How are you, mate? I'm good, mate. Did you like a bit of Stevie there? Yeah, I love Motown Mondays, yeah. Um, Stevie, like Stevie, you know, Marvin Gaye, all those great singers, the Commodores, can, can, can you, all that era. Can you just that say that again? I love Motown Monday. I love Motown Monday. Oh, man, I love, love you. It. I love you even more, man. That's, 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 where, <laughs> that's where the brotherly love comes. Man, it seems like the season only just finished and you guys are probably just winding up the first part of pre-season. When you look back on 2022, on all honesty, forgetting about the footy, are you just glad it's done? Yeah, it's like a huge weight lifted off the shoulders. It was, it was just living in a temporary world for so long, not knowing what was around the corner. Even though we knew that we we're going to be back for 2023, it just seemed everything seemed so temporary. And now that we've now that you get a chance to look back on it, you think, how did we do that? And how did some people you know handle that situation? So. Super grateful that we were able to keep our jobs um, and super grateful that we're back home. You know, we're really excited. We had a little bit of a, a workshop today and, and some of the things that uh, the players spoke about that they're really excited about and they all mentioned about playing at Mount Smart again. So, um, yeah, so it, it's exciting to be back home and, and, you know, familiar surroundings and, you know, friendly faces again. The whole the whole COVID thing feels like a blip, doesn't it? I remember talking to you, just picking up the phone and saying hi and you were. I remember you saying to me, I'm sitting in my apartment looking across at the beach and uh, I'm having a coffee, but I can't leave it. 
because of yeah, the rules that you were you were under. Personally, how tough was it for you? Um, I most probably found it a little bit easier because being Australian, I'm from Australia, and while I'm not from Queensland, there was a lot of familiar surroundings. We're in Terrigal, um, so when the restrictions were lifted, um, my family was able to come and see my mum and dad and my sister, who I wouldn't normally regularly get to see. And I can only imagine how hard it was for some of the guys that had their families back here in Australia, some of their extended families. You know, some mm. of those guys um, still live with their grandparents and, and, and so forth. And, and some of those guys are still young men, you know, fair to say I've you know lived majority of my life and, and an adult life and got some life experiences along the way. So there were moments that were difficult. Yeah, definitely moments that were difficult. But... Um, I think the moments that you did feel sorry for yourself, you always just had a little bit of reflection and thought to yourself, there might be somebody out there that might be struggling a little bit more than me that won't, mightn't have been able to go um, see you know, a relative yeah. that might have passed away or that was sick, et cetera. So you know, while there were moments for me, um, you know, reality was that still had my job, still was able to, you know, to, to work and had my health and all those types of things. So um it wasn't easy, but um, like I said, so many other people had it so much more difficult. Therein lies it, right? Because you're part of the leadership group, being a coach, a responsibility to make sure that uh, others went through it comfortably. Did did you see growth in some of the younger players understanding the situation they were in? Yeah, definitely, because they had no other choice. You know, some of these guys hadn't lived um, away from home before, hadn't lived by themselves. Some of them you know, only had real basic cooking skills and those types of things. Um, and, you know, even some of the guys didn't, weren't regular drivers of cars, you know, so they, they had to had to organise all those types of things. So I saw the, you know, saw the, you know, the growing up of some young men, you know, um, they, they went away quite naive and not a huge amount of life experience behind them. And now, you know, they, they you know, they handled living through a pandemic, handled, you know, progressing in their professional rugby league careers. So it, it was it was quite rewarding seeing some of those young men, um, you, know, you know, turn into much more mature human beings. And I think that'll, that'll make them better for the experience and hopefully make them better, you know, rugby league players as well. But I'm sure uh, Coach Webster will be mindful that you can't keep playing on that particular part of the, the last, say, 12 months to try and inspire, right? But more use it as a, a learning point. To yeah, we, we've we've learned some lessons from it, um, but realistically, we've put it behind us. You know, as a whole club, um, we we made a point of that a little while ago to say, um, yes, we've we've gone through a period of change and, and difficult situation, but it's behind us now. There, there's no there's no excuses. There's no leaning back on it. There's no feeling sorry for ourselves it's put behind us we've learned some lessons from it and it's time to crack on um and i think the fact that we've got a number of new players we've got you know some new staff members obviously new head coach another new assistant in rich agar um and you know the high performance team's changed and and i think it's a new group like you never have the same group two years in a row there's always change whether it be staff or players along the way so what's happened in the past is the past and now we're concentrating on, you know, 2023. And you know, we're into week eight of preseason. Very rarely do you get to have eight weeks before Christmas. Normally it's a six-week lead into Christmas. We've had nearly a full eight weeks. So um, we've, we've got plenty of work in um, and we've learned plenty of lessons along the way already. Um, 
So yeah, it's been it's been a, it's been a good first couple of months. That's interesting. You say you've got eight weeks and you've learned lessons. Can I be bold enough to ask you what lessons or a lesson you may have learned already in the the first eight weeks of preseason? Yeah, just you know, along the lines of you know what some players are capable of. Right. Um, you know what what. Um, you know what is the the best system for us to use you know we we you know it's it's all good and well to come with a huge number of ideas but if you don't you know mold those ideas for for what you've got um there's there's no point in you know cracking on with it because you're not you're not going to reach your potential so by having a nice long uh lead into christmas it's allowed us to and i, I don't want to use trial and error because it hasn't been like that we've been very um you know, very regimented with our planning and, and very thorough making sure that we knew the direction that we wanted to go. But um, we've also put them under some physical stress, as you'd imagine. So we've learned some lessons about who we feel, you know, um, thrives under those conditions. We've seen some players, you know, show some real leadership skills. And certainly in the past fortnight, we've seen some players have a really clear understanding of, of what we want to do as a footy team. So um, they're, they're some of the simple lessons we've learned. We've learned some lessons around logistics as well, you know, um, what works and what doesn't work and, um, yeah, little things like that. So I think the good thing about Webby is that, you know, he's, he's very much a very inclusive coach. Uh, and he's, a, he's also a coach that does a lot of reflecting and, and reviewing of what's worked and what hasn't worked. So that, that's, been, that's, been, um, that's been great for me as well. I remember you telling me when when you were an assistant at the Melbourne Storm that it was really, really intense uh, because you were constantly, constantly doing video review, right? Constantly doing video review. Is Andrew of the same type? He is, but in in a different way. Um, he he's he's very much. Um, encourages players to review their own performance and then get feedback from coaches. Um, so there's some of the players are still in the education stage of their careers. You know, some of, a lot of them are under 50 games, you know, and even when you're over 50 games, it's not until you get to the triple digits that you can say that you're a real genuine NRL player and got a really good understanding of the game. And the game evolves and changes so quickly. So he's not, um, he, he's not, overly big on massive long meetings um, and, you know, and standing out in front of the group for 45 minutes and yeah. going through video. It's lots of small little packages and there's lots of self-education. And um, that's why I say in the last fortnight or so, we've seen some players really have a real good understanding using the right type of language and understanding of where they're making errors on the field and, and what the system requires them to do, whether it be a tackle defence or whether it be a transition, whatever it is. So, um, he, he's big on that education side of things, but he, he's, he's very big on players having the ownership of, of doing it themselves. What style of footy can we look forward to? You, you've been there long enough to see differing styles. Yeah, I, I think we, we're we going to tap into what the Warriors are good at. And I've sort of, you know, I sort of said a few minutes ago that it's important that you that you tap into the tools that you have and we've we've got a we've got a footy team that will move the football we we want to play we want people to look at us and say gee they play a nice attacking style of footy they they're tough to compete against we've been very competitive at training um, it's something that we've really tried to you know to to make a point of over the last couple of months in making sure that there's lots of competition um, whether it be physical competition whether it be you know small sided games whether it be purely skill-based, whatever it may be. So, um, And I think 
we like all the teams that didn't make the eight we need to we need to become faster and more mobile and when i say faster that doesn't mean faster as in you know you do sprint training but being able to move to things faster and understanding thinking faster and getting to the next position you know um, and being ready for what might be coming at you so I think we will we will be a footy team that that wants to entertain and wants to play an exciting brand of football. I don't think we I don't think we're going to go down the path of being a a strangling team, you know, like a you know a traditional you know Melbourne team or a you know team even you know to a degree Parramatta. They're they're quite a grinding footy team. Um, I think you'll see some flamboyancy with us. Risk and um, risk and reward footy. Yeah, yeah. I think we will. I think we will. I think we need to we need to understand that. We need to take risks. Um, you have to score points. That's, that's the bottom line. But at the same time, we need to be able to defend at different stages. We've 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 had a real good um, balance of attack and defence. Um, you know, a lot of teams at this time of the year, um, you know, might just concentrate on one side of the ball. But we've had a, and, and that's because of the competition that we've tried to create within the group. Um, so there's been a we've we've touched the ball a lot more than we have in the past. We've done a lot of team things already. We've we've already broken off into our small small groups, our edges, our halves, and so forth. But we've actually done quite a bit of team footy work already, and it's been quite some time since I've been at a at a club where we've done that amount before Christmas. Normally this is late January, early February. So I'm quite excited about that 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 we've been able to sort of touch on you know some style of play. Um, you know, already before Christmas. And you know, that's what everyone likes. That's what everyone loves doing. Nobody particularly likes the drilling of movements and all those sort of things. You still have to do those, but um, we've been able to progress to the footy stuff fairly quickly. You you know as well as I do that uh, natural footy brains are few and far between. So, you know, I mean, the natural footy brains, the, the Coopers of this world, the Andrew Johns of this world, you know, that, that type of footy player. So... Intuitive football across a team, is it primarily still learnt behaviour? I think it is. And I think, you know, you took, you, you pick a couple of players there. Um, you know, I think Cooper had to learn. He had to learn to be like they had to learn to play like that. And that's one of the strengths of Webby. He, he, that's how he wants to educate players. He wants to educate them by scenarios and, you know, whether it be a you know, a game that's designed to get the halves thinking about how they finish their sets or when they should be kicking the ball. Why Why would you want to make that decision there? Why would you want to run the ball in that situation? So he's very big on that type of education, you know, because he's a he's a very intelligent um, football brain himself, Webby. You know, he mostly won't tell you that himself, but I've been fortunate enough. I've, I've worked with him I'm coming up to almost 10 years now at different clubs and in different roles. So um, he's he's very intelligent. Um, he's got a good footy brain. But one of his strengths is that he's able to impart that to players quite easily. Um, and, I've, and I've seen him start to do that already, you know, with some of our younger players. And, you know, like so Ronald Volkman, for example, you know, young halfback and, you know, he's, he's really working hard with him. You know, Luke Metcalf's another one, a younger type of player, and and really challenging them on why they're doing things out on the training field. Why did you make that decision to not kick the ball? Or why did you kick the ball there? Or what's a better thing, do you think, in a scenario that you might find yourself on a Sunday afternoon with this? And so that, that's that been that's been great to watch and listen to as well. Um, and then, then you can throw in some of the more senior players, you know, Torhu and Sean and 
Mitch Barnett, who obviously, you know, educating the, the players on the run while they're out on the field as well. So, um, yeah, it's, you know, I mean, but I think if you talk to all 17 clubs, um, they're all fairly excited at this time of year. You know, no one's, no one's lost the game yet. You know, nobody's... <laughs> we're all champions. Paper for, yeah, we're all champions in <laughs> November and December. But, um, you know, Webby said something today that I thought really sort of resonated um, and said, look, by having a, a great preseason doesn't guarantee you a, a, a great season. But if you have a poor preseason, there's there's a real correlation that you'll have a poor season. So um, he's really challenged the players to to make sure that any momentum that we've built up over the past seven or eight weeks that we continue to do that over the break. Um, you know, we get a little bit of a break away from from coming into work every single day, but we need to continue that momentum and make sure that the eight weeks before our first game. Is, is is the same as the first eight weeks. Um, it, it, so I, I thought that was a good way of putting it. Well, it reminds me a bit of the Manny Pacquiao line, uh, which is in my gym. Not that I'm Manny Pacquiao, but he says, if you train like you intend to fight, then the fight is easy. Yeah, yeah. And, right? And that, 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 that's, a, that's a great way of putting it. And I've seen you throw them. You can throw them all <laughs> so, Settle down. Maybe not many Pacquiao, but you know. Not yeah, yeah no. Let's let's yeah. not go there. Look, indulge me just a little bit longer, if you would. Uh, Dylan Walker, yeah. I found, was an interesting acquisition. Uh, I'd like to know if if with his years of experience, you are seeing an impact on the team in any small way, and how you see him being that that perfect number fourteen off the bench. Yeah, he's been uh, he's been very good. He came um, over. And we're all a little bit, you know, wonder what, wonder what. I've never coached him. We're all wondering, you know, what his motivation was. Um, and he's really, really wants to be in touch with the, the Maldi side of his his culture and his heritage. And, his, and he spoke, you know, very passionate aboutly about it um, to the group um, when he first got here. Um, he's worked hard physically. He's worked hard physically. Um, and he's a very, very smart player. He's a very, very intelligent player. And one of the things that excites me is that, you know, a lot of our, I suppose, ball movement through the middle of the field has been via Torhu. Um, and, you know, he's got that nice little soft pass. You know, you think about some of the line breaks that Bunty made last year and Josh Curran was on the back of Torhu's passing game. We've got somebody else that, you know, is equal to um, that skill level in the middle of the field now. So, you know, Dylan Walker can play that perfect number 14 role. He can come on and change the point of our attack, give ourselves, our halves a chance to be a space wider if they want to be or be a little bit deeper or we want to put two halves together and a fullback on one side. So he allows us to do that. Um, and he's been e- exceptionally professional. He's a character. You know, he brings real energy to the group. You know, he keeps he keeps everybody honest, um, coaches included, you know. Um, and he's got a real larrikin about him. But when it comes to hard work, uh, he doesn't shy away from that. And I've really enjoyed, um, you know, picking his brain about um, different types of plays and what works and what doesn't work and different types of movement around defending types of different types of shapes. And... He's brought a, a real professional um, outlook mm. um, to, to the group. So he, he's, he's been a, a really good addition, as has all the new recruits. But Mitch Barnett's another one. Like, he's a competitor. He does everything at full speed. You love like, that, though. You love you know, that. He, you love it. You know, like, he just he reminds me a little bit, you know, like back in the day, like of Campo, Kevin Campion. You know, he's just a bit like that. He's a bit rugged. He's a bit rough and tumble and... 
you know, he's most probably not finesse with the way he plays the game, but he's really, he's really, um, you know, brought our training for our middles to another level. He keeps them really honest. He runs hard all the time. He tackles hard all the time. So if you, if you're not, you know, equal to that task, you'll get found out. So it, it's been it's been great having him there as well. There is one player I would just like your thoughts on because it's almost like a a resurrection, not redemption, but resurrection of a kid who pulled called time because of a a brain injury uh, has come back, played solidly for the Bronx, and now Tomati Martin is is back. I think where he probably wants to be. He's another one that is really excited about coming and playing for our club. Um, you know, he's he's a he's a he's a very very proud Kiwi man, um, and again another player that's brought a real level of you know um, buoyancy and energy to the group. Um, he works extremely hard on his game. He, he's a he's a he's a very you know astute player, um, but at the same time he's quite relaxed and you know you can have a laugh and a bit of a joke with him. Um, I coached him for the first time when I was with the Kiwis, he came on the tour um, to the UK for a Four Nations. And he was only a kid at the time. Um, and that was my first interaction with him. And I, I thought he was an extremely talented player. Um, now he's a talented player with some experience behind him. Um, so he's very vocal in meetings. He's very vocal um, out on the training field. Um, and he, he's diligent. He works really hard on his game. You know, sometimes... You know, I've seen with talented players, they don't always work as hard on their game as, you know, the non-talented players. But if I was to pick a player that, that's working really hard, it's um, Tomati. Um, and again, another player that, you know, keeps you really honest. You know, he's quite jovial at different times. Um, but, you know, he, he works hard in the conditioning side of things and he works hard on his skill game. So um, that can only be positive for us. Okay, I, sh- I shouldn't drop this on you, but I am. Ben, ben Murnock Masilla, staying or going? Um, staying as far as, as as far as I know. Um, okay, it was just I, that I, talk I, about Super League. Yeah, I, I somebody said that to me the other day, and I said, "Well, it's the first I've heard of it." Okay. So, um, as far as I know, he's he's staying. Okay, yeah. man, uh, that's cool. Uh, how does Christmas look for you? Um, off to Canberra for uh, for Christmas, um, and then over to the south coast, Bermagui, for a few days around around New Year's. But it'll be a nice, quiet one. So, looking forward to. To getting home and um, you know seeing some some you know family and friends. So um, I haven't been to Canberra for Christmas for a few years. So uh, nice. that's where my partner's from. So yeah, well to that, that's mate. cool, man. Well, uh, all the best to you and Jim, man. Have a have a wonderful Christmas and and don't forget to have a schmuck and a pancake. <laughs> Good man, mate. Merry Christmas to you and uh, mate. Great chatting. Talk soon. As always, Morgs. Thanks, man. It's five twenty-five. Johnny's next.
5.33 on a Motown Monday with Stephen McIver, DJ Nerve and Captain K in the house and it's time to talk some cricket and <laughs> the only thing you want to talk about right now is how does a, a team win a test, a five-day test in two days? That's what Australia did. There were 34 wickets taken in six sessions of cricket. And to break this one down, uh, from Crick Buzz, crickbuzz.com, is Bharat Sundaresan. He joins us right now. G'day, Bharat. How are you, man? Very good. <clears throat> Still can't believe I'm in my hotel room ordering um, Uber Eats on, on what should be like day three. I should be getting my free lunch at the stadium right now. <laughs> That's what you're really griping about, having to pay for lunch, right? Oh, absolutely. Like that, I mean, look, if you want short finishes, at least drag us into the third morning so that they, the, you know, the organizers or the, uh, the stadium guys have to give us food. So you know, that's the life of a journalist. Who said there are no free lunches in life? Just, we've just run a story, Bharat, on the fact that the ICC is going to look into this incredibly green pitch, which, and you can tell me, was it unplayable? Um, honestly, it, it wasn't. Uh, you know, we had a two-day finish uh, last year in uh, in Ahmedabad where India and England played, and and that almost played out like like a very old-school horror movie, right? From the beginning, you knew, oh, oh, this is this is going only one way. This is not going to last for too long. But I think the GABA pitch and just the GABA test that that finished yesterday almost had a more um, new-age horror. Uh, movie fielder, it was more sophisticated. Like, you weren't sure that it's going to end that way because um, the pitch, yeah, looked green, uh, but it has looked green before in domestic cricket here and, and even like the MCG pitch last year. Uh, and even though, look, wickets started falling very early on uh, on day one with South Africa, you expected the South African inexperienced batting lineup to, to struggle. And, and honestly, it was only somewhere during day two that even I personally started looking at the pitch differently because there were these divots, like the surface underneath was so soft and there was so much moisture uh, that uh, the more, and you have these big, tall fast bowlers on both sides. So there were these very obvious divots. And towards the end of day two, it, it did become a, a little ridiculous, honestly. Like uh, Australia's run chase, what, they lost four wickets uh, on their way to get to 34. And uh, all their batters were just throwing their bat around. They were just they just wanted to get to the finish line somehow. So it did get uh, uh, a little too um, out there in a way. And uh, like Dean Elgar said, uh, if I believe if play had continued into day three and day four, we might have run the risk of this pitch being deemed unsafe. So, so the question remains: Was this damaging for the integrity of Test cricket? Um, I wouldn't go that far. Uh, I mean, it, we've seen so many of these dull five-day test match draws all around the world. And, and over in Pakistan, you have England playing a very new age form of uh, test cricket. They've revolutionized it, haven't they? Uh, so, I mean, I think the the odd two-day, three-day finish uh, is, is not a bad result for test cricket. It was exciting. I mean, you expected the two fast bowling attacks to have a say. But for them to have this much of a say, it was yeah, a little disappointing, for sure. But, um, yeah, I don't mind a, a result. And, and I'm not talking about my freelancers here at all. But <laughs> occasionally for a game, the bowlers to have such a big say, uh, it, it, it was exciting. Look, it was gripping till the end. It never felt like, oh, just call this off. Like, like we have been or we have felt at times when uh, the, the Islamabad test, the Rawalpindi test in Australia were there in Pakistan. 
that felt like, come on, you know, I mean, just call this off. But this didn't feel like that. I mean, we didn't have to. The game was finishing right before our eyes. It could have actually finished in five sessions um, if the South African tail hadn't wagged. What I, what I would love to know from you, and, and you've just mentioned uh, Brendan McCullum's uh, revolutionising the way England play, and as you've said just there, revolutionising Test cricket because he was a you know he was a risk and reward batter, went out there and just went for it. But I, I've always wondered, and has the IPL and the proliferation of big hitting and the idea to get runs as fast as you can, has that invaded test cricket to the point where it needs to be dialed back a bit? Or, 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 or let me, or let me add, add to that. Or are uh-huh. we living in an age where we just want results? We want to see big hits and bowlers hit all over the place. Uh, I think, a majority of world cricket is headed that way, uh, and it's it's unavoidable. And the shorter formats have definitely had a say in how Test cricket gets played, uh, and in, in a good and a bad way. I mean, it depends on how we look at it. I mean, what England are doing, what Brendan McCullum is getting this English team to do, uh, nobody had thought of this before. I mean, people attempted it maybe for a few sessions, maybe one Test match here or there, but to go and do it everywhere they play is is yeah, I mean, it, it is. It, he is a pioneer. And just on Brendan McCullum, he was also the pioneer in the IPL. Don't forget that 158 really kicked the IPL off um, like nobody expected it to. So I think the world will look back at Brendan McCullum in a few years' time with uh, a lot more uh, awe than, than they do already. But just coming to what you were saying, I think techniques have been definitely been uh, impacted. Like for all the talk about the pitch, some of the batting from South Af- the South African top order in particular was really inept across both innings. Uh, the technique, I mean, the ball that got uh, Rassi van der Dusen out, uh, a number three should not have such a big gap between bat and pad, you know, to a full ball. So uh, there was a bit of that as well. So it, it definitely is impacting. But there are still guys like Cheteshwar Pujara and Manas Labushain and Steve Smith were able to survive in this era as well. And I think we shouldn't forget that either. So let's take it a step further. And this would be and the, the concern for the lovers and the purists of Test cricket. There are young women and men out there watching this happen in Test cricket. And they are so impressionable as to what goes on watching their heroes. And when they're seeing their heroes go out there and looking just lump at large out towards the boundary... Technique, as you have quite rightly mentioned, sort of be- becomes something they don't want to have to think about. So the responsibility now lies on coaching at the lower levels. Oh, very much so. And uh, I-, I umpire quite a few games at the at the junior level in Adelaide when I'm not covering cricket. And and, and you're on the money there. I've seen 12 year olds, 11 year olds, um, when they're just practicing. They're practicing the ramp shot. They're practicing the reverse sweep. Um, I'm not saying that uh, nobody, none of them has a strong defensive technique, but um, those shots have just come into the game and they're coming into the game from a, from a very young age. And as a coach, how do you, or at what point do you pull them back and say, no, you can't do that? Um, you know, the world has changed as well. I think generationally we're all uh, more uh, or, or more like open to the next generation doing whatever they want to do or at least changing their approach. So it's going to be dif- different and difficult, but It'll be interesting to see how many other countries, though, uh, can do what England are doing. Because, A, it, it, it's not just the, the 14 guys who are in Pakistan right now who are batting like that. It's a cultural revolution. Everybody in England right now seems to be uh, charged the same way, where they have that freedom to go out and, you know, play or pull off baseball, as they're calling it. <laughs> so, 
Um, that so even though it looks like England are changing the world, I mean they've definitely changed the way they play Test cricket. I mean they were horrible last year when they came here for the Ashes. So something had to change. I mean I always called it their um, get busy living or get busy dying moment. And uh, you know Brendan McCullum has come at the right time as the Andy Dufresne from Shawshank Redemption to you know take them to uh, this new brave world. But whether the rest of the world catches up, uh, it's going to be interesting uh, to see how the next couple of years in Test cricket play out. Do you like it? Um, that's a good question. I when it started off, I was a little skeptical about it. Um, I'm just 37, but it doesn't. Uh, I am a little more old school than I should be at my age. But I did feel like um, my question was the sustenance of it. Like, how can they sustain it in other conditions and? Uh, will they sustain it? Like, will they back their talk? But then you're talking about Brendan McCullum and Ben Stokes, two guys who um, only know one way, right? Once they commit to something, they're not going to back down. But it's 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 almost fascinating how everybody is kind of uh, owned up to it. Uh, everybody is kind of dialed into it in England. Uh, so it's good to see. I mean, the way they won the T20 World Cup as well. Um, but I still do like my hardcore test cricket. I, and I don't think that will change. I don't think a Manas Labushain or a Steve Smith or a Virat Kohli suddenly are going to start playing or a Kane Williamson is going to start playing the way England are. Uh, so it'll be a good mix. Uh, but it's something fresh and new. I mean, we have a new shiny toy to get excited. <laughs> yeah, but, but I've always wondered, I've always wondered whether the, the history or the, the, the legitimacy of test cricket is being tested in a world uh, which is driven not necessarily all the time, but is driven by youngsters and social media who want that quick fix. And because we've seen the, the explosion of the IPL and then other, other formats of T20 cricket around the world, that maybe there's going to be pressure on the ICC to figure out, the and this is for me the key word, the relevance of test cricket in the modern world. Uh, honestly, I don't... Yes, I mean, the death of uh, the obituary of Test cricket has been written quite a few times in the last two decades, ever since white ball cricket completely took over. Uh, But I still think, from a broadcaster's perspective, it's still a big sell, especially when the big countries are playing. I think that's the big challenge, though. Like When India, England and Australia play Test cricket, um, there's still a lot of money to be made for the broadcasters. It still sells. A lot, it's what happens with the other countries, whether it's New Zealand, South Africa, Sri Lanka, West Indies, we saw here in Australia just two weeks ago. Um, what's their future? Uh, and I do worry about that, um, purely because can they manage to keep on, hold on to a lot of their younger players um, when they're not playing as much test cricket as, as everyone else? So you are very obviously missing out on making uh, the kind of income you can if you are from uh, one of these countries or... If you take the other route, like a lot of people have started doing, and start playing in these leagues elsewhere. So 2023 will tell us where world cricket is going or will be going in the next five years. Okay, one final thought, not even about cricket. Do you love kabaddi? <laughs> oh, I mean, I I grew up in a very urban part of Mumbai where I didn't see much kabaddi, but the pro kabaddi league, which kicked off a few years ago, got me really hooked onto it. Uh, and yeah, I mean, I've never personally indulged in it, but it's a fun sport to watch. Yeah, it is. Just had to ask you, I had the opportunity to uh, call the World Cup in, <laughs> in Ahmedabad uh, uh, four or five years ago. It was a, a whole heap, it was a whole heap of fun. Barat Sundaraisen from CrickBuzz.com, thank you so much. I hope for the Boxing Day test you get all your free lunches over the five days. 
Uh, actually, you know what? I don't mind the boxing day test finishing early because my wife's coming with me, and she'll be very happy to see my face for two extra days. <laughs> well, well, well spoken, my friend. Uh, take care, and thanks for giving us your time. Thank you so much. Have a great day. Yeah, I got a woman way over town. That's good to me. Oh yeah. Motown Monday, just time to wrap up with, why not finish with the legendary, uh, the late, great Ray Charles, Stephen McIver, Captain K and DJ Niv. That's, look at you guys all got nicknames, eh? Captain K, DJ Niv. Don't act like you're not the big show. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's my nickname. That was my boxing nickname. It sort of stuck with the guys at work. Anywho, let's just wrap this up today with a couple of things. First of all, Tiger and Charlie Woods, Charlie's his son, right? They've been playing in the PNC Championship. They finished T8, but I was just looking at socials the other day and they were comparing the young Charlie to his father's swing oh my goodness did you see it it I was did. it was almost identical isn't it scary and this is a thing that I've been wondering about like athletes like LeBron James who's on the TV right now a perfect example his son Bronny, Bronny is so close to entering the league and like think to yourself if he's got at least one is Bronny at college or at high school he's at high school so right that's now. what his father did he didn't go to college yeah. Bronny yeah. went straight out of, sorry LeBron went straight out of Saint high Vincent, school St. Mary's and, a million, and it went back to the bank he got a million bucks so he did a Nike contract straight Nike. away yes sir went straight to the bank and got a loan for his mum's new yes, house sir. they said we well, haven't got any money he said guess what look at my bank account yeah. Bronny, uh, Le- so Bronny, his son, and Bryce, his son, are both on the same high school team at the moment, <laughs> playing for Sierra Canyon. I don't think Bryce is as, is as good, though, right? Oh, yeah. Oh, okay. Oh, yeah. So Bryce is uh, taller than Bronny. All, all in and the that's jeans. scary. So that's, but that whole swing thing with golf being such a technical oh, sport, man. it is staggering. Now, you were going to, we were just quickly talk about it. Uh, Colin, is it Killian? Killian. Killian yeah. Mbappe. Three hat trick, hat trick in a World Cup final doesn't win. I mean, so Niv, Niv and I both got up this morning to watch the final because we're we're big footy boys, you know. Okay. Uh, don't give me that face, Stephen. Yep. Um, but I I couldn't actually watch the game because I was just so I'm not even an Argentina fan. Yeah. I was just so invested in Messi winning the World Cup that I couldn't watch it, and Mbappe scoring a hat trick. Like you'd, at, you'd, at the time, it was the worst thing to me because I was like, he is stopping like Messi's legacy right here. Right. But the fact that he could score a hat trick in a World Cup final, which has only been done once, you know the date, don't Hurst, you? right? Sixty-six. Jeff Hurst, that is correct. Right. Yeah, nineteen sixty-six. Isn't isn't that amazing? Like that he could score a hat trick, which is tough to do in any game, let alone a World Cup final, and go on to lose. I think we have been lucky. I mean, it was quite interesting listening to uh, Fred Young earlier saying, yes, it's been great, but don't forget about... Uh, he was basically talking about sports washing. Mm. Fine, OK, check that opinion uh, opinion aloud. Or the, but I think what, the, what we've seen is something special in Qatar. Oh, a- a- we, have seen, we have seen favourites knocked over, we have, and we have seen uh, legends uh, cement themselves as, as legends of the game, as we saw with uh, Lionel Messi. D- did you really enjoy the whole cup? Genuinely, the whole cup, and you said it best. Once the tournament started, it was all about the football. That yeah, which it. which not everybody agrees with, right? And, no. and, we, and we and we know the political ramifications and things like that. But but it you is. look at it for what it is: the FIFA World Cup. It's football. 
I think it's some of the best football we've ever seen. And we live in a very cynical world, don't we, where you can't, can't say much because everybody will report on it. We are done for the run home this Motown Monday. My thanks to Captain K and DJ Nev. I will be back at uh, 2 o'clock on Thursday and also Friday. Scott McLaughlin in the house from 3 o'clock on Thursday afternoon and Greg Murphy from 3 o'clock on Friday. I'm Stephen McIver. Until then, look after yourself, travel safe. Thanks, boys.